listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Christian Gregory. It's a pleasure to join you here today. I'm the executor of my father's estate, the one and only Mr. Dick Gregory. I'm an executive producer on the one and only Mr. Dick Gregory, a new documentary film coming out July 4th, um, the 4th of July on Showtime. I also, I've managed my dad for the last 20 years. I've been his body man. I've been his chiropractor. I've been his business partner. Um, there's a whole host of Dick Gregory uh, multimedia projects that are being done. Um, I've ghostwrite um, numerous um, of, 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 as a partner with my dad on numerous of his books. The man has gone, but his seeds are still here. Um, and in that sense, um, I'm a gardener. So um, you may know me by by many names. There's 10 of us Gregory children, so I'm one of the team. But it's just such an absolute joy to join you here today on Make It. And so with that, I'll say um, thank you. Thank you. And Christian Gregory, welcome to the Make It podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me here, Chris. This is, a, I can already tell this is going to be fun. It will be. And it's just, uh, it's, it's kind of um, a dream come true for me personally, because uh, you and, and Dick had such a big impact on uh, myself and the reason Bonsai exists, the reason this podcast exists, the reason we even got into film. I've said that many times on other episodes. And so to bring all of that home, uh, in this in this conversation is, is going to be a real joy for those in the audience that aren't familiar with you. I'm going to read a little bit from a bio, and uh, this is the internet, so feel free to add to anything or correct anything. I'll, that's I'll wrong. edit real time. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, Dr. Christian Gregory is a founding partner of Gregory Entertainment. He is the executor of the estate of Dick Gregory, director of the Dick Gregory Foundation Society. Dr. Gregory is a board-certified chiropractor and the medical director of, the, of Washington Spine and Disc. Dr. Gregory is the vice chairman and sits on the board of Wellness in Nature. Dr. Gregory is the eighth child of Dick and Lillian Gregory and served for more than 20 years as Dick Gregory's closest, closest advisor. He was the point of contact and consulted on all matters pertaining to Dick Gregory Christian has consulted and advised countless legends, iconic civil rights activists, Academy, Tony, and Emmy award-winning actors and producers, Grammy award-winning musicians, sports stars, and personalities. Christian is the author of In the Shadow of a King, the editor and compiler of the Dick Gregory Collection. He's the author of The Caribbean Diet, The Ten Commandments of Optimal Health, and the executive producer of I Am Dick Gregory, which is a documentary, and a consultant on Turn Me Loose, the Broadway play. And then, of course, the upcoming documentary, The One and Only Dick Gregory, which premieres on Showtime on July 4th. How was that? Uh, great. Job well done. That is an older one. I've, I've, you know, it's a lot of the fluff. You know, as you get older, 
you start to tighten things up. So and this that was that was kind of my analog one. The digital one's a little more streamlined. I am Dick Gregory is now the one and only Dick Gregory. So oh, gotcha. the name and title has changed and evolved. Um, really, how it came to be is a whole separate documentary on its own. So yeah, but yes, that's a uh, similar to my dad. Um, it's difficult to kind of. Um, you know, my dad always encouraged us to own our own things and the importance of what you and Nick are doing to own your own, our own media companies. And so in 2021, it's just so heartwarming as we come out of this pandemic, just to see how many, you know, black folks are controlling and have more of a controlling hand of the media that impacts our community before. And my dad's era, it was literally three or four, you know, executive producers at three or four networks, because that's all that existed, probably over a shot of bourbon decided what stories got told. So, you know, now this with this, you know, the the silver lining of the day and age we live in, yes, there's more out there and in more, a lot can get lost. But if you take your time, there's plenty of those needles in the haystack. You just need to know how to search for them. And that's different from before. Before we had too little information. Now we have too much information. And it the the, the, we should be duty bound to find answers and to search for truth. My dad used to read so many newspapers because he'd always say he was looking for cracks in the fiber. And I encourage all of us, the fiber being the matrix, I encourage all of us to seek those cracks in the fiber and seek that truth. Now, I should also say, my dad was not a, you know, um, 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 red or blue pill guy. He was a both. Uh, many times we would go out, we'd be on the front line at a march, and then we'd go get a nice massage at the Ritz-Carlton afterwards. Um, the duality of, you know, um, 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 you know, joy and pain is profoundly important because all work, no play will burn all of us out. At the end of the day, we're all mammals. 206 bones, 605 muscles. What we choose to do with our bodies is on us, but we have to definitely remember that we're human, we're not machines, and take care of those creature comfort things. And Dick Gregory did an amazing job balancing those two. I agree that you, you can be an activist and still enjoy your life. And, and now, right we now we right there's a movement to sort of virtue signal around, you know, well, if, if I'm an activist, then then I also need to live in a hostel. No, you don't. Uh, you know, you, you need to get you need to win a little bit yourself so you can help others win. Um, but just for this audience, for those it's, it's a worldwide audience, global audience. For those who aren't familiar, can you summarize uh, the one and only Dick Gregory? Not the movie, but the man. So um I would say no, but out of my love and appreciation for you all, I'm going to give it a give it a fair shot. So okay. <laughs> um, part of the reason we have, you know, Dick Gregory with the 10 multicolored silhouettes is the man metamorphed so many times um, that it's, there's no capsular, you know, kind of synopsis of who he was. Um, I'm so happy that this film is out now because I can turn people say you never heard of Dick Gregory if you're interested go and watch the 110 minutes, and then we can chop it up intelligently on the backside. Because what does your dad do was always a profoundly difficult question for us Gregory's. And so, and it really depends which one of these iterations folks were talking about. So in short, he was a breakout high school and college athlete, one miler, I mean, um, set multiple um, um, state records. 
From there, he went to he, college. He continued to run. He was drafted into the military. And the military is where he really started to refine his skills as an entertainer. My dad used to sing and play the bongos first before he became a comedian. He was always funny, even during his bongo routine. Just the thought of Dick Gregory playing the bongos will make some. Growing up on the farm, um, you know, my dad had bongos. And I never... I just thought they were probably gifted to him from somewhere. I never realized that that was his, you know, that was his gateway onto a stage. And so from there, he came out of the military, moved to Chicago, um, you know, started working the local kind of black comic circuit. And then he just exploded. Uh, um, my dad would always say preparation and opera, not that he came up with this statement, but he would remind us preparation and the definition of luck is preparation met with opportunity. And so we were always prepared because he insisted we were always prepared. And he was prepared when the opportunity at the Playboy Club presented itself and he maximized, he capitalized on it. And like a rocket, just a rocket trajectory from, you know, from, you know, pennies to multimillionaire. And that in itself can be dangerous. We see that in real life. And so kind of rags to riches story. Um, Dick Gregory was a rags to riches, to rags, to riches, to rags, to riches, to rags, to riches. It was a spectrum that he rode like a swing. And he loved that because it was the rags that he got his strength in most metamorphosis as we go through that process, there is pain and discomfort that helps to evolve. He thrived as odd as it may sound on discomfort. So it was during those transitions. And so when uh, in 1963, when Megger Evers called him to come down to Mississippi, um, he got, I don't wanna say bit by the bug, he got pissed at the injustice. And as a result of that, he called my mom, you know, just a loving couple that always made decisions together, called my mom. At that point, only my sister, Michelle and Lynn were born. So it was two of the 10. Um, and he said, are you willing to go back to where we just were to the struggle for right? And my mom, you know, knee jerk response said, absolutely. First of all, they hadn't even been living high on the virtual hog that long. So sometimes it's a little easier to go back. And so they said, look, we got this all wrong. We're not finding the comfort, the joy, the solace that we thought we would find while we're looking at, you know, our people struggling. And from that, it wasn't a slow pivot. I mean, he always turned on a dime. Um, you know, Dick Gregory was no cruise ship turning. You know, he was a motorbike. He turned yeah. on a dime and became a civil rights activist. And so civil rights activist to nutritionist to social critic. And up until the day we lost him in 2017, he was instilling knowledge and information. And even with him now gone, that beat continues to go on. And it's just... It's a blessing, you know, I'm just elated to play the small role I play in keeping his legacy alive. All of us Gregory children have never tried to fill our father's shoes. What was important to us was to keep them shine and keep them out there as an example and as a beacon of hope for the rest of the world to realize you can make a difference. Thank you for that. That That is a great summary. And it's funny. He did so much that that you probably could have. I could have asked that one question, and that and could have been the, the entire podcast. It's That's how much he's before. done. Yeah, and you're right about him being a motorbike. I mean, even to the day, and correct me if I'm wrong, to the day of his of his transitioning, 
uh, he had 10 shows booked, right? So that, so that week, so the week he passed, the week he was in the hospital, that week he had 10, you know, a lot of folks, if they're not in comedy, they don't realize that, you know, most of your comedy clubs, they'll book you for two or three shows in a night, you know, Mm -hmm. the five show, the seven, the late show. Mm -hmm. So uh, my dad and Paul Mooney had been crisscrossing the country as the godfathers of comedy. And they had some of the shows he had booked with Paul together. Some were individual Dick Gregory shows, but he had 10 shows. There were 10 shows. And I know because I was the one doing the post (laughs) rescheduling those shows and being very careful not to alarm people because at the time we didn't think it was something that serious. And so we were being very careful not to alarm people and to let them know, you know, Dick is a, he's a, he's, he's, he's alive and well. Um, The only person who's seen, not, not, you know, not to think, but was certain that it was something bigger than what we all thought was Dick Gregory. He kept telling me that, kept telling the doctors that, you know, um, all of his, you know, Minister Farrakhan called and talked to him for hours. Bill Cosby called and talked for hours. All of these people that he had been back in the trenches during, you know, this 1968 was like a, you know, it was like a second, you know, civil war. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are things in our comfort that we grew up in, you know, even to reflect back on it. I mean, it's like reflecting back on the civil war, you know, it's like, hey, took a musket shot to the stomach, like, yeah, let's go. Let's go boost the Wi-Fi signal and turn the AC up. So it's we just can't relate. And so we can't. He could relate. They could relate. Um, Minister Farrakhan's call with my dad and just the deep conversation they did about Martin, Medgar, Malcolm. Oh, it was it was so heartwarming. My dad had a tear in his eye the entire time. We all did. Um, but not a tear of sadness, a tear of joy, because all of the names that these two frontline, you know, you think soldier, you think violent. They were soldiers for love. I mean, they were soldiers for righteousness, for right, not wrong. You think of that and you think most of them didn't make it. They didn't live a full life cycle. And so Mm -hmm. in Dick Gregory's life, you see a little bit of what what Dr. King could have continued to to bring to the world, what Megger Evers could have continued to bring to the world, what Malcolm X, and so many names we don't know. We know the names that we can kind of rapid recall, response and list off. But, you know, there was there was tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. You think of you think of lynching. Lynching wasn't an effective way of genocide. That wasn't the purpose. It was terrorism. It was yeah. to show you your place. I would have to kill 10,000 people silently as opposed to lynching one person publicly. That was a form of terror. That was domestic terrorism. So when we look back and we think of what these folks endured, and then you know we get hypercritical about one little thing they did when they were 80 or one big thing, I don't want to belittle anything, but it's important that we view folks' life in their totality. In America, we're always told that we're a nation of you know, law and order. Um, my dad in his lifetime, he always saw the duality of that law and order. Um, some yeah. folks would say, show me the man, I'll tell you the law. And so in our generation, we're still seeing the duality of that. Nowhere near what it was in my dad's time, nowhere near. And he was clear on that. We've made significant advances. But, you know, January 6th very clearly showed us that there are still two systems of justice in this country. And for me, selfishly, in my little Dick Gregory moment, I was so happy (laughs) when all of those, all those white folks did leave 
and were not arrested because I said for the next eight months, we're going to be watching, you know, these folks get arrested and do perp walks. So what would have been over in 30 days is now going to be Elon. Oh, we got we got another one. We got another one. So yeah. just to remind folks as a drip, the disservice that was I mean, and just to you don't even need to do the exercise, quite honestly, Chris, I'm thinking of. What if that was black and brown folks that did that? You know, you don't need white folks don't even need to do that exercise. It's so obvious that there's a double standard that continues to be there. But definitively, my dad would describe it as a pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. The original you hear people now, oh, cancer, cancel culture, cancel. You get no more cancel culture than, you know, 400 years of slavery. You get no more cancel culture than lynching teenagers from whistling. I mean, I don't want to hear about cancel. So some, you know, white grandma says the N-word on her bus route and gets fired. And now I'm supposed to feel bad. Oh, Kim, when other folks were getting canceled, they couldn't go and get another job. Cancel culture for them meant they ceased to exist. So um, that falls on deaf ears. Yes, it will be nice when things, as all pendulum swings, they'll recalibrate and they'll come to an equal medium. Hopefully we see that in our lifetime. With Barack Obama, we saw a sense of what, not a post-racial America, but a post-racial black man. Barack Obama, I mean, think about this, you know, if you and I, or if you or I were the president, the, the last thing we'd be doing is playing basketball every day, inviting people over for a fried chicken <laughs> summit. Like this man lived his life without yeah. all of the baggage of stereotypes. And part of it was because how he was raised. It shows us a glimpse of once we shake all this baggage, um, there's hope. There's real hope there. And I always explain you have grandma. And first of all, you know, white supremacists are not just white. Black folks can have a white supremacist mentality. Um, women can have a sexist mentality. So you look now, and I always always say you have grandma and grandpa upstairs, you know, with their clan's hood on. And then you have the parents, not with a clan hood, but share many of their the, of the grandparents' philosophies and views on life. But then you have the grandchildren in the basement dancing to Jay-Z and Beyonce and couldn't have a care in the world about race. A lot of this is going to die off. We're not going to change the hearts and minds of folks. They may behave because they know they have to. But my hope for the future is as and my dad was always laser focused on the youth, is that the youth will recalibrate and sort and fix this thing. And his goal was always our goal wasn't to just completely stop the Klan, white supremacy, alt-right. It was to take their hoods off. And that mission accomplished because now these folks are out there in all their glory and they're just being identified and dealt with, identified. and You have grandchildren turning against their grandparents because right. right is right. Wrong is wrong. And my dad would always say that some of the most powerful forces on the earth don't make a sound. Get up early in the morning and watch and watch and watch, watch the sun smack nighttime out the sky without making a sound. Big, forceful movements, they're bigger than us. And when you really think of the significant amount of time that human beings occupied this planet, um, what we've went through was a very small part 
of melanated people's history. And it's time to really start learning about more and focusing on more so we can really instill that promise into young folks. But it is, um, it's to see media platforms like what you've developed. And again, kudos to you and Nick, um, you all are family here. So shame on me for not getting on here sooner, <laughs> but um, it's, I'm proud of the work that's being done. It's impactful. It's meaningful when people who love a community, love a people, play a role. And I'm not saying we need, you got to write direct. No, no, no one other than Black folks can be part of these films. I'm not saying that at all. But it's important that people that love and definitely respect the story that's being told. Similar to policing. You got to have people that, you know, love and respect the community. If not, what we've dealt with for hundreds of years becomes what they think is normal and acceptable behavior. Absolutely. I have so many notes here already. We might have to marathon this one. Um, I'll touch on the family part of it because you've mentioned that a few times now. And so to give the audience a sense of who you are and, 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 and how you got here today, uh, 10 children, 10, nine other siblings, um, large family, 100-acre farm in Plymouth, Massachusetts you grew up on. Um, how was it like growing up with that many siblings? And, and then you had the celebrity of your dad. Um, did you get shielded from the public notoriety? Great question. Yes, by just the, you know, the geography of it all. Just by where we were located, you know, it was a, a, a three three hundred acre farm that abutted right up to another oh, three hundred acre. three hundred okay. acres that abutted up against another thousand acres that then abutted up a three thousand um, um, acre Massachusetts state forest. So when we wanted lots of kids, but when we wanted to disappear and get off the grid. It was easy and we did it frequently. So we would go, you know, from all 10 of, we had our own five on five for any sport we wanted to play. So we didn't have to go and get neighbors to play pickup games. <laughs> there was no TVs in the house. So it was books and it was activity. I mean, we did what mammals were supposed to do. We got up and played hard. And then when you got tired of each other and just wanted your own time, you just dis. I had so many different. I had an A fort, a B fort, and a C fort. So if one of my siblings were in my A fort, I'd go to my backup fort. We were like Rambo out in the woods. We had so many plans. I had books at different places, snacks at different places, trip wires set up. No, it was a. It was the. You know, it was like we grew up on the prairie, man. It was a. You know, and for us, there was no sugar, no refined white flour in the home. So when we could ever get to one of the neighbors and, you know, one of them give us like a Snickers bar or something, the, the high we would get from high fructose corn syrup was definitely the equivalent of like, you know, a heroin <laughs> dose. So it was it was it was we were scavengers. You know, it was it was hunters and gatherers. I mean, we were just it was just a thing. I mean, you know, barefoot shoes, whatever. But whenever my dad came home and I really want to deal with this. Um, when my dad came home, it was literally like, you know, a scene out of coming, you know, coming to America. You know, we would we would line up, not literally, but like just excited to see our dad and hear the stories from the front line to, you know, to see the 
trappings of war, the newspaper article, the certificates he had won, the statues, the story. He always came back with folks. So he would come back and, you know, he'd come back when Larry Flint was with him. It was the oddest group of folks who would come to the farm. Um, you know, my dad was close with so many folks. I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder, you know, Marvin Gaye, um, 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 the Jackson family. So this was the Gregory farm. My dad also did a lot of drug detox. So a lot of, you know, um, um, very successful athletes would come to the farm and there were multiple properties there. So he would bring them and he would pink Himalayan sea salt, like alarming amounts of it, um, soaking in tubs just to, to alkalize the body and to help people to beat nutrition, to, to use nutrition, to beat their chemical dependency, but then tough one-on-one counseling with Dick Gregory. And that was the, you have to have if when you're addicted to substances to have someone you love and respect be there, you know, eye to eye with you for 24, 48, 72 hours was the primary reason he saw such significant success rates. And none of these things were things he did for profit. These were things that he did for his love for humanity and his fellow brothers and sisters that he knew had a bigger platform, a bigger role, and that, you know, addiction was one of the things that got in the way of. But for us, Gregory's, you know, for all children, if the life cycle does what it's supposed to do, you're the child, then you get older, you become almost like peers with your parent. You parents, you help them with things, and then that slowly role reversal, and you become like the parent. It's always very respectful, and they become like the child. And as they get older, as Miss Cicely Tyson would always say to me, once an adult, twice a child, as they get older, um, many times it is very childlike. And so the respect of treating them as a parent, but also providing the needs that they need. And so many entertainers, when they get on a stage and a light hits them, they reverse age right before your eyes. So I'd watch my dad go from a real old 84 to a spry 64 in a matter of seconds (laughs) because his shows were in its frontal lobe. And dementia, Alzheimer's, so many other things, they typically don't impact the frontal lobe. So when it's, hey, this was his happy spot. So the stage, airports, and hotels, and train stations were where my dad would reverse. Whenever he was having a rough day, we would go and get lunch. He didn't know that's why I was doing it. Um, here at Reagan National Airport, well, he would never call it Reagan. At National Airport, we would go to National Airport and do and get lunch because just being in there just would bring him back. And it was just, you know, the human mind and body is so incredible, um, specifically yes. his mind because he had seen so much. So I don't think any of my siblings and 10 surviving, we lost my one brother, Richard Jr., long before I was born. Yep. Um, really, Richard Jr.'s death is the reason my dad firmly believed he was not with Megger Evers on the night that Megger was assassinated. Yep. Um, so there would there technically there's 11 of us Gregory children, and we all kind of you know live and champion and carry on. You know the junior, he's the, the only junior in the family, um, and, and honor and respect his name and legacy. Um, the the love, and my dad would say this all the time. You know, Hitler had a mother and father at home. Jack the Ripper had a mother and father at home. Having both parents physically present doesn't mean they are there's a there a presence in your life. He said, you know, as he would say, very colorful. Half of these n words aren't home when they're home. So he yeah. would have his own. And I think 
it bothered him a little bit more than it did my mom or any of the siblings, especially when we were younger, because, you know, our hearts overflowed with love and joy from the man. I mean, there was no, oh, we miss daddy because we understood he was out on the front line. It wasn't like, you know, Papa's a Rolling Stone. No, Papa's up there, you know, you know, a bulldozer for justice. And he's on the front line, like a member of SEAL Team 6, doing the ugly things that other folks aren't willing to do. So, you know, us 10 little Gregory ducklings could sleep comfortably at night. And comfortably is quite how our expression was. I mean, finest schools, the finest, you know, things weren't that material back then. So it wasn't like, you couldn't look at me or any of our friends and tell, you know, whose dad was a multimillionaire, whose dad was a celebrity, who's one. We all just, you know, and that's one of the um, real silver linings about that back then. You know, there were no smartphones. There were no, you know, it just was none of that. There was no right. internet. You just, you just, and I'm not saying, you know, the world's the worst place because of it. It all happens for a reason. It all plays a role. Um, you know, innovation and technology. I'm, I'm, I have multiple technolo- technology companies, so I embrace that. I understand it. I feel like we all need to. But for my dad, you know, he, in many articles, he kind of laid the foundation of kind of like, oh, I was never home. And other folks picked that up to be, oh, absentee dad. That wasn't what it was at all. This was, it was my job was like he's an astronaut. He's on the moon. Like yeah. we knew he was somewhere doing something meaningful. And when he came That's home, a great way to put it. you know, quality versus, you know, quantity. When he came home, the quality time, I can remember vividly, hey, your dad will be home at 3 a.m. We were all up. And so he would come. <laughs> My dad, sadly, had all of his teeth kicked out um, when he was 14, shoeshine boy, um, by a racist white man that didn't like that he touched a white woman's foot while he was shining her shoe. So for his lifetime, he had false teeth. I only reference this to say um, when he would take his teeth out, it would scare the hell out of us kids. So he would come home, take his teeth out, put them in the glass, come out, moan like the mummy a few times. Us 10 kids would, you know, haul ass up into the hills. Yeah, We thought he was searching for us. He went right back inside and went sound asleep for hours, man. Every little leaf we thought was him, every little tree branch. He entertained us even when he wasn't out there actively engaging and entertaining us. So um, the young part, and I say young, like high school and down, was one kind of interaction with my dad. When we went to college, all of us were required to go to HBCUs. When we were in college, my dad had arrangements with all the schools like, you take care of my kids, I'll come and I'll come and lecture at the school each semester. So, you know, I saw him, you know, that's when that relationship started to change a little bit. And, you know, sometimes as our parents Stop being okay. I got to be protected. Look, I never heard my dad swear at home. First time I heard him swear, I was elated. I was like, and to see how good he was at it, you know, I said, I got to step my game way up. And so, part of the reason, you know, many of us Gregory's curse as well as we do, because, you know, the master showed us early on and when it's appropriate. But I was just shocked that for my whole 18 years of life, I had never heard my dad not slip once. And it just shows his laser focus and just kind of aptitude. But as we post incredible. grad school and post that, when the veil starts coming up and you see, hey, we're peers now, that may have rattled the cage. I don't say rattled the cage, but some of my some of my siblings, like for me, it was like, hey, you know, we're the same person. 
Like, you know, I love the wild jokes. I love the inappropriate commentary, you know, especially done in a protective way, not poking fun at others, but always very lovingly. I mean, Dick Gregory's best material was never on a stage. I mean, it was in a yeah. sidebar and just the most immediate wit filled wisdom that you would laugh about for weeks, still now reflecting back on. So um, fathering was very different for him. Loving, not at all. The love was omnipresent, and that went throughout our lifetime. I mean, any of us Gregory children that needed anything, he would have tripped over himself to get there. Most parents won't admit it, but they have a favorite. He would have tripped over himself to get it, whoever it was. He definitively was profoundly proud of his children. Yeah, and parents uh, um, never admit that. But kids always want to know. They always ask, as a father, like I get, I get questions all the time. Who's, who's your favorite? Just who, who do you like the most? And it's not all or none. It can be like, I like this one the most when we're laughing. I like this one the most. Right. You know, it's, it's not all, it doesn't all fit in one bucket. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, there's something I've always wondered, which is you have 10 siblings. How did this fall to you? I mean, you've been his healthcare provider and his manager for... 20 plus years, like how, why you, why did it, uh, why not Ayana or one of the other siblings? Great question. And I think that was, you know, we just were alike, you know, as odd as that may sound. Um, my dad would always say, um, you know, you need to be up here on the stage with me. And I would always say, pop, you told me how horrifying of a career choice comedy is. You encouraged me to become a healthcare provider and now you want me to go around. And he would also almost say, always say there's a profound difference between being a comedian and being a humorist. And so, you know, uh, you mentioned my sister, Yama. I'm sure she won't mind me telling this story. When I was, you know, 19 at Morgan State, me and my buddies fancied ourselves for about all of, you know, 30 seconds of being gangster rappers. And we recorded <laughs> what I like to believe was a mean, was a mean gangster rap. Tape. There was no album tape. You know, we're all passing the little mic around. Right. Um, I definitively like to believe I had bars. And so uh, <laughs> somehow I lost that tape and it wound up in Ayana's possession. Mm. And she called me uh, sounding like a mother, just so utterly disappointed. And, and she laid into me like I was her own child. The uh, And I laugh about it. I mean, I laughed then, too, because I was like, OK, at least it fell into her hands. Um, you know, now it might be a hit. I don't know. But the uh, but the 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 loving and lovable, if any of us strayed away from that, we would all kind of be bellwethers to each other to say, you know, we received more. So more is expected from us. And sure, rap. But why would you be doing gangster rap, um, especially when you are the furthest thing from a gangster? The uh, And so, you know, it's just, you know, you know, boyhood ambitions right. growing up. As I said, it lasted all of 30 seconds. But to really answer your question, me and my dad just hit it off. We realized that there was a, a, a lot. In life, and I explain it to people as, you know, I had a multi-personality re um, um, relationship with my dad. So it was father and son. Then it was Richard you know, Christian and Richard, and then it was Christian and Dick Gregory. And I could manage those, and my dad could too. When it was showtime, we had a different relationship than when he was just kicking it in the office. Right. And we could, you know, um, you, 
My dad would come, we would just sit on the sofa for hours watching old movies and coming. My wife, Melissa, and I, who at the time, she's retired now, was a news producer with CNN. We were all obsessed with news, so we would just sit. And Dick Gregory, just the the friend, more than the dad, just the friend, you know, not when he has to entertain, but can really just put his feet up. He can get uber comfortable. Like, I mean, like I said, like many of the pictures you see where he's just kind of folded into a chair, he yeah. can get uber comfortable. And when he gets uber comfortable and relaxed, there's times he'll doze off and wake up, deliver one just hilarious one-liner and go right back to sleep. I mean, funny, just like a live electrical wire just ran through um, the man's body. And, you know, my wife and I, we just loved it. We couldn't get enough of it. And so, you know, to go to lunch with my dad, because conversation was really the number one form of substance with him. Um, yeah, you know, lunch was like a four-hour ordeal. I'm like, holy smokes, I'm through everything, Pop. You haven't even touched your salad. And so um, it was the blood and things at the time that sometimes, you know, the pace of life you want to push and say, well, let's do it. I learned long ago to slow down, realize that aging is aging. You know, we're all going to be there someday. And you want to you want to surround yourself when it became with people who love you, who are going to do the best for you like they did. There was parents didn't have a rule book for how to take care of kids. We don't have a rule book for how to take care of our parents. Some people put their parents in a home. Some people that's unfathomable. Some parents prefer to be in a home. So there's not one size fits all. It's unique to each parent and child and what their relationship are not all children are good caregivers or good care providers. Sure. I mean, it's not in everyone's personality and you may be a great caregiver for one person and a horrible caregiver for another person. My dad realized there was nothing he could say that I would find offensive because I knew the love the man had. So even if it was something that came out wrong, it didn't even get a raised eyebrow for me because, and a lot of what he said was for response. And once he realized that I can't, you know, I can't stir any anger in Christian because he's given me just a universal pass and not out of some like blind ambition, but out of like very 2020 understanding of who the man was and what he represented, what he represented in all of the sacrifice. I, sometimes I would just be awe inspired, not at the celebrity of holy smokes. This man has changed the Gregory DNA in his lifetime, he literally has changed. If you read his autobiography and he talks about his mother wishing that, I just hope one of my children can make it off of North Taylor Street. Mm. Whoa, we are a, you know, a, you know, a, a galaxy away from North Taylor Street. And so, and what that goes on with the grandchildren and, you know, and everyone lives, we're all, all 10 of us Gregory children are profoundly different, but we all are rooted in service, activism and love in our own different separate ways. And that's the, no one says as you grow old, you know, you know, mammals have to be best friends. Um, you have to love each other. You have to love and respect each other. Sure, you know, you bump heads. When my dad did his Nike commercial, there was a demographic in the family that was strongly opposed to it. Um, there were some that were pro and I just, what, you know, I, at that point, I was a lifelong Adidas man. I was like, <laughs> had natural slim feet. Adidas always fit better. I never gave it any thought. And so uh, yeah. what I said to my dad, I said, look, Pop, you earn, you re like all these silhouettes here represent, you represent a lot of things. 
And so if you want to take a stand and do this and kind of introduce yourself to a younger global audience and what the conversations with Nike were very clear. It was all all black writers and producers on this Kevin Durant commercial and their thought and what I said to you earlier, um, Chris, about the importance of the people on the team loving you and respecting you. Mark yeah. Thomashaw, the gentleman who pulled this together, uh, was the global business executive at Nike at the time. Mark and I are still great friends. We talk weekly. That week together on this shoot impacted and changed all of our lives. My dad decided that, okay, um, once he read the script and saw how much love there was there, he had initially said no. When the word got back to the marketing agency and the two brothers who had wrote the script, one of them literally cried. I know this because they met with us and had dinner with us when my dad decided to do it. He said, I cried because I wrote this script for you, Dick. I wrote this just from my reverence and love and admiration for you. Um, I wrote this for you, and when I heard no, I was so incredibly heartbroken. And to be mm. sitting with you here now on the set, um, and the dilemma that Mikey, that, that the the dilemma that Nike had is they represented, um, um, you know, arguably the baddest, um, um, Kevin Durant and LeBron James, and they said, okay, we need someone who can tell the difference between. What's the benefits of being the best and what's the benefit of being the baddest? And so who better to do that than Dick Gregory? So he was like the the bellwether, the 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 the, the old wise owl, the tree of yeah. knowledge to say who wants to be the best when you can be the baddest. And it was a I mean, it the it was it was, you know, black grandma's cooking. It was roller skating. I mean, it was it was so sure it was a white company. Um, my dad insisted on not being paid. So there's a picture of him receiving a $1 check from Nike. These are Dick Gregory things. These aren't things I encourage other people. These are things so he could sleep more comfortable at night. So, um, but it was done and it ran, Nike runs their commercials once and then they go online in perpetuity. So it ran during the World Cup globally. Oh man, people from Harare, Zimbabwe, Johannesburg, Ghana, you know, Europe, um, people from all over the world started calling and emailing like, was that just your dad? Was that just your <laughs> it, it just it did what we wanted to do because we it was a great commercial there. It really, really was. I look at it frequently yeah. still. Uh, and I've been a Nike man since then because I was like, you show love to the family. The family shows love back. At least I do. My dad did. And so the thought was there would be a grandchild watching that commercial and see their grandparent that never gets excited about nothing light up like a Christmas tree seeing Dick Gregory and then say, hey, why are you so happy to see who's that man? And to have a dinnertime conversation about Dick Gregory. And so now there's, you know, there's critics who will say, hey, well, that's the wrong approach. It's what the man wanted to do. And I was a firm believer of, you know, as folks get older, you let them, as long as they're insulated and buffered. I mean, I, I, I hated that my dad still drove because it was like bumper cars every day I was getting a call. And I said, I, I tore up so many of his cars. So I was like, I really can't say nothing. I just need to be, you know, I tell I said, Pop, you keep hitting stuff. We're going to have to put you in a helmet and a mouthpiece before we let you get behind the wheel. And so he would always say that. You know, he had such a nice car. Had I can't say it as colorful as he said it, but it had so many airbags. If they did ever come out, they'd feel like you know breasts coming out. <laughs> so it was it, everything was rooted in just you know comedy, but it was very serious. 
at the same time. And now that I have the comfort of knowing that there was no, you know, no tragedy at the end of his life cycle, it was as smooth as anyone could have hoped, almost example inspiring. I can look back over all of those little moments and see, yeah, I, I definitely got what I deserved. I mean, we tore, you know, my brother Gregory and I, we tore my dad's brand new Rolls Royce, like apart, I'm ashamed to say. I mean, we go cruising. <laughs> we were both freakishly big for our size. And so we would push the car halfway up the driveway before we'd started. And yeah. so no one would hear us up and leave. And we'd be cruising all night through downtown Plymouth in a brand new silver shadow Rolls Royce, like all of 15 years old. We looked older because we had mustaches. You couldn't tell us nothing. Then my mom would wonder why we were exhausted in the morning and couldn't go to school. <laughs> we were like, we were like Uber drivers before Uber existed, picking folks up, bringing them from one party to the other. No, the Gregory family children's stories um, pale in comparison to our dad because they're they're so, you know, they're so silver spoon that it's almost despicable to even talk about it without reminding people that the activism was real. The knucklehead stuff of being kids was real, but the activism was real too. Fun fact for you, there is a neo-soul artist named Christian Gregory he came out in 2014 and has just disappeared. I, I, I don't know if you sent him a cease and desist on the name. No, I, I'm a firm believer that all publicity is good publicity. So I'd imagine folks looking for Christian Gregory Neo Soul would find Christian Gregory Heart and Soul. So yep. the, um, you know, it's all love. People, you know, my good, name. Good music, by the way. Oh, really yeah. So I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look them up. I'm gonna yeah. have to. Guys got four songs and they're all up. great. You know, maybe I can. Maybe I can get on there and um, spit some lyrics over some of his neo soul. Yeah, some gangster lyrics. My gangster rap <laughs> days, and we can come out with something hot. Let's talk about this documentary a little bit. The one and only Dick Gregory. Um, how did the idea get started? How did Andre Gaines get selected or involved in writing and directing this and producing it? And, uh, you know, what advantages does Andre bring for, for the people here uh, that are interested in filmmaking? I want to take the last question and move back to the first. The advantages of the true advantage of Andre Gaines is youth, the network around him and just being all digital. Um, you know, I'm 51, grew up in an analog world. Um, I have a digital mind. Most of what I do is digital. But there's still that delay as it gets translated in my brain. The beauty of folks who are digital and a lot of what you'll see in this documentary is just some breathtaking technical um, um, elements. I mean, some of the colorization at the beginning is just brilliant. Right now, um, you know, me and my dad never cared much about reviews um, mm -hmm. now. So now that I'm happy that they're good, it seems like I should be a little shameful. But the Rotten Tomatoes at 100 percent, which wow. I always say, oh, I never look at Rotten. Well, I'm looking at it now. Um, <laughs> the the Rotten Tomatoes at 100 percent. And Dick Gregory was always a man of the people. The reason I'm so excited about Sunday's premiere is to hear what the people, you know, most of the folks Dick Gregory loved and vibed with don't go to film festivals, aren't streaming from the film festival platforms. You know, they're not playing a grand to go see all the movies. Um, they're like, no, 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 no. I want to see that movie. I don't want to see everything you're showcasing. I want to see that movie. And so what Andre gains and what I'm so excited for people to see 
it just brilliantly stitches together the old, the new, um, you know, some of the, um, I'm a former high school math teacher. So I know, you know, my principal at the time always said, you can't always just write good things. There needs to be some, you know, purposeful, constructive criticism. And I know most reviewers feel that as well, which is true. Like on a story so complicated, you can't get everything right. So most of it, most of the things that I've seen review wise that were not positive, um, which it's very little. It's a, oh, well, you didn't expound on this. Well, 110 minutes. Really, it should have been a docu-series. Um, but, you know, yeah. the financing of how these things come together. And it's not a one and done. There will be more. But probably, as Andre always explains, four or five movies, you know, are on the virtual editing bay floor. I mean, there's there's a lot more there. So what Andre, um, similar to what I've mentioned about Barack Obama being post-racial, Andre didn't have the baggage that some of the people who grew up on Dick Gregory had. Oh, I remember when Dick said this. Well, I remember when Dick, oh, Dick was crazy when he used to tell us this. Well, Dick's what Andre went into this similar to Lena Waithe, um, discovering Dick Gregory, because that's what most people do. They discover the man um, during the state of the black union addresses that Tavis um, Smiley used to have. Yeah, and yeah. just immediately saying, looking at all of the other luminaries that were there and how they just you know, respected Dick Gregory, the man, the energy, the force of nature. And Andre was at the time working on a black survival guide. It was a film that was going to, you know, it was 2015 racial strife was going to teach folks, you know, black folks how to survive almost like a green book, um, um, which I want to touch on that movie in a moment. Um, since we're going to talk movies, I want to chop movies up with you for a moment. Uh, almost sure. like a green book type of uh, um, of a film. But he met Dick Gregory. He interviewed Dick Gregory. And as so many times is the case, um, it suddenly became a Dick Gregory project. And I said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to go back and revisit this contract, young man. This contract says you want to interview. And I was very strict with that. If your film was going to be 10% or less Dick Gregory, and, you know, he's a subject, you know, he's, 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 he's making a contribution to your film. People say, oh, we want Dick to make a contribution. And 50% of the film is his. No, that's a Dick Gregory film. And so right. we would always be very careful. And so we went back, we restructured the language of the deal. Um, and I am Dick Gregory was born. And what people do back then, as you know, they start Kickstarters. And so he started Oh, when Dick Gregory found out someone was raising money in his name because he didn't understand the concept of what a Kickstarter. <laughs> and I don't try to look. I got enough on my plate. That's not my job, Mr. Andre Gaines, to explain to your subject why you're raising money in his name. Right. And so, come on, Andre would say, Christian, you know how this works. I said, look, you got to choose your battles wisely. That's on you, young man. So my dad laid into him pretty significantly. Uh, you out here raising money in my name. And I knew it was like, people were getting t-shirts, <laughs> like, you know, merch. From, I knew it wasn't like, hey, I'm raising a million dollars to buy a home in Dick Gregory's name. Yeah, there's, some, you know, there's some cool uh, Dick Gregory 68 t-shirts I've seen out there. I, I saw those recently too. Yeah. My position on Dick Gregory merch, you know, if it's if it's someone, you know, mom and pop, and they're doing, there's a gentleman we've given permission that makes a lot of Dick Gregory shirts that sells them online. It's a South African brother. Um, you know, I'm not guarding this lot. Like, I want the knowledge. You know, if if Adidas or Nike wants to do a Dick Gregory shirt, that's different. But the, the, the young folks out here being young entrepreneurs, my dad always wanted, first it used to be 100,000 millionaires and it became a million millionaires that he wanted to inspire 
Armstrong Williams made his first million dollars selling Dick Gregory's Bahamian diet, which is now Dick Gregory's Caribbean shake. But mm -hmm. Armstrong Williams, before he became, you know, the media mogul and real estate mogul, it mm -hmm. was selling Dick Gregory's Bahamian diet as a multi-level, you know, um, distributor. So um, Dick Gregory was always about black media doing the right thing, owning our own story, telling our own story. And now more than ever, you know, we're, we're seeing that, but laser focus back to Andre for just a moment. So Andre brings a technical skill set that just makes this film pop. Yes, it's long. Um, it, how could it not be? Um, but it really makes it pop. You can watch this film with the sound off and it would be amazing. You yeah. can close your eyes and just listen to it. Um, a brother, Kyle Townsend, apologize if I mispronounced his last name, who did the score. Um, I've been seeing rave reviews just on the work that he did, uh, and rightfully so. It was all young black and brown folks who loved the man, and you can tell this wasn't a job for them. It was passion. And that's really the beauty of what Andre Gaines brought to the brings, because it's not over, because um, um, we're not done. Um, there's more work that the Gregory Estate's doing with the Gaines team, with 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 Lena Wave, Kevin Hart, and Andre Gaines. There's more projects. I've seen people, you know, we, there's a big landscape out there now for Black folks producing and directing films. Sure, getting finances is profound, something we still need to address, but the ability and the technical know-how is there. And Andre really put an all-star team together that everyone mentioned, not just the executive producers, but producers and technical crew as well. Everyone had a tremendous love and appreciation for Dick Gregory. And if you really know the story, honestly, how could you not? This man's blood, sweat, and tears is on every, I mean, you know, disabled Americans, white women have benefited more from Dick Gregory's labor than <laughs> anyone else. And so anyone, you know, my dad would always say, and let me see how I can say this politically correct. You know, back in his day, if you were if you were a stewardess, because you were a stewardess, then there were no flight attendants. You were a stewardess. You had to be, you know, white, beautiful, something out of a centerfold of a magazine. And he said, so when you get on those planes now and you see that ugly white woman bent over <laughs> with a club foot, you can thank us for that. So he was always very very clear that his activism helped. And again, it was a joke. No offense to old, ugly, white, bent over, or clubfoot. This was a joke about bringing a point home that the activism of the civil rights movement helped <laughs> the whole spectrum of humanity is better as a result of the sacrifice of that generation. How did uh, Kevin Hart and Lena Waithe get involved? How, how did they come on as EPs? Um, they asked. They heard the film, and so they, they, they were not sought out. They heard the, the they heard about wow. the film. They reached out. There were no pre-existing relationships. My dad had a pre-existing relationship with Kevin Hart. My dad and Kevin Hart were friends, but you know, my dad's you know, friend, people always hear Dick Gregory said he didn't hang out with celebrities. He still knew these people. Not hanging out, wasn't going to Oscar parties. My dad knew Hugh Hefner. He never went to the Playboy Mansion to party. He went there to pick up his checks and to sign deals, but mm -hmm. never went there to party. So people sometimes they take things so literal. Oh, I saw Dick Gregory with 
Eddie Murphy. I thought he didn't hang out with. Well, you know, th these people that he's role models to, when Eddie Murphy received his Mark Twain prize um, at, from the Kennedy Center, they had a private dinner the night before where my dad, my dad spoke. And Eddie was, you know, late. I'm sure there's a lot of things going on. And they were very, you know, these are deep pocket folks that put this on. They were very, you know, white folks, very eager to, you know, get everyone to behave and quickly <laughs> get Eddie up to the stage. And Eddie just hard, like, Full stop. I'm not going nowhere till I go over there and hug Dick Gregory and talk to him. 20 minutes. They took their time. Chat as, oh, much to the chagrin. There's a lot of red faces in that room. <laughs> so, like, time is money. And these two said, we don't care about your time. This is the few times we can, you know, you know, what did uh, Aunt Maxine say? Reclaiming her time. This was one of the few times they could reclaim their time and say, you are on our schedule now. And I'll never forget, Eddie Murphy said, Dick, I'm performing tomorrow and I haven't done comedy in however many decades or years it was. He said, for the last six weeks, I've been watching nothing but your inner, um, your YouTube clips to prepare me from getting back up on the stage. And, you know, we were just not surprised, but it definitely was heartwarming. But the other part was important to folks like yourself and to Ron Brown, as you mentioned, and, you know, Mike over at Real Black, you don't know the impact of these platforms, I'm certain that Ron and, and, and Mike over at Real Black had no idea that Eddie Murphy is sitting up in his mansion taking notes from their platform as he's performing to step back out onto the world's biggest stage, technically for comedy, which is the Mark Twain Prize. So right. I encourage folks to keep it up, keep doing it. Kevin Hart and Lena Waithe saw Andre Gaines out saying, we have a tremendous amount of love for this man. We must, not because we want to, but they felt like they could elevate and bring something to the table. And we're grateful because they both definitively did. Yeah, I love both of them. And um, was it always Showtime? Did you no. did you know, like, have or, or did you shop this to a bunch of different places? How did it land at Showtime? It, it was shopped at multiple places, and I think the timing of it, because it fits so nicely into everything going on in the world, but the timing of it, um, you would have thought it would have been a bigger demand, but I think people were still a little kind of, and people, I mean executives, oh, I don't know, Dick Gregory, you know, some of this, and, you know, as you'll see when you see the documentary, you know, it's it's Dick Gregory and his full spectrum of life. And so there's no like editing out language. And so um, Showtime had looked at it, uh, TV One, BET, they all had expressed interest. And for me, I just uh, uh, Netflix, I really knowing so much of my dad's demographic is is older folks. Um and, and here I am as film producer going to talk bad about Netflix, but it's things get lost there. You know, things go there. It's an ocean of content. And it's a red ocean. I, it, it, I mean, and so, and which is great. I spend a ton of time on the platform because, you know, again, being digital minded, laser focus of what I want to see. But Dick Gregory's built in, baked in audience is going to find this wherever it's at. For those folks who might just be late at night flipping through the TV, it was important for me to have this be somewhere where it was scheduled. Something that it's just, hey, it's playing on airplanes, it's playing, and people just stumble onto it. 
the tech, you know, the key art so beautiful, engaging, the technical elements are so beautiful that someone would just say, whoa, what is this? And say, this is a must watch. And wow, I learned so much. Hey, mom and dad, have you ever heard of that? Oh, we heard of them when we were just to start conversations without yeah. only getting his niche and his niche audience is massive, but without to be more far reaching. So for me, it was I was always interested with it being with a premium cable channel, cable because we didn't want to restrict the language, but with a premium cable that would also, you know, they all stream now. So you get the best of both worlds. So Showtime really, the real catalyst for Showtime is, was Lena Waithe and Lena Waithe's relationship. I mean, with her doing the, um, the, the shy and yeah, exactly. I mean, Lena Waithe is just a sledgehammer. I mean, the, yeah. you know, it's a um, Love and master of none as well. Oh yes, uh, 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 absolutely. And I'm, I don't watch much of the. You know, I'm a news guy like my dad, so um, I'm on my phone reading news platforms 24/7. The um, the the Lena Waste them, um, just not since Crooklyn have I seen such beautiful depictions of blackness and black families. I mean, sure, it's ugly. Um, 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 subject matter, but that's part of history. And I know Pete, I made a decision some time ago, I wasn't going to see any more slave films unless someone was really bringing something new to the yeah. narrative. My dad and I took a lot of heat because we really loved Django Unchained. And mm -hmm. part of the reason was Django was they, great. They rewrote history. You know, what slave film have you ever left feeling good? It doesn't matter if you won the battle, it matters how history remembers it. And I understood after watching Django, this is why great white societies have always rewritten history because <laughs> what really happened, you know, doesn't matter. Well, it matters then. It doesn't matter 100, 200, 500 years from now. And so my dad and I saw Django multiple times in DC, in the theater, mixed audience. Every time we saw it, people stood up at the end and clapped. Like, when have you ever experience that in yeah. a slave film. You know, Eddie Murphy in one of his jokes back in the day was like, he wished he would have been a slave. Massa would have came up to him, told him, go bail that cotton. He would have grabbed his Johnson and jumped in his Lincoln Continental and sped off. Like, but to see that, the embodiment of that in a film and say, whoa, this is a beautiful thing to say. And you know, you know, there was some brothers. And when I say this, this isn't to belittle the folk. We can't even fathom what that but, you know, there were some folks that, you know, that pushed back. There were some folks that said, you know, their stories got written right out of history. But there were some folks that pushed back just like now. So I think it's important that people who love you tell your story. Lena does a beautiful job of really highlighting the beauty of black families. And if you, you know, and I, the only reason I watched them, because I don't watch, you know, I'm not, I think life is horrifying enough, so I don't watch horror films, because um, you know, most of them aren't scary, they're shocking, and there's enough shock and awe in life, it's like a car accident. Yeah. The, um, But I watched that because I saw all of the beating she was taking, oh, black, black pain, uh, black trauma porn, and black, and, you know, platforms are big enough for us to say, okay, if you don't like what someone's doing, do your own, you know, like we can, we can do, she's earned, definitively earned the the, the, the status and the weight and influence, um, which is massive. Spending as much time in Hollywood now as I do, um, it's massive. I mean, her presence is really everywhere um, and she's talented and she's a worker. That's the one thing, Kevin Hart and Lena Waithe, very different. But the one thing that is, you know, synonymous with both of them is just 
hard work. These folks are workers. And, you know, it's, I learned long time ago, you can be as intelligent as you want. If your work ethic is not off the chart, you know, you'll be a flash in the pan. And so it's a great team. It's a dynamic team. Um, as I said, it's a super black team, um, super black in attitude and mindset. And there's really some great things to come from, um, from this team. Yeah, it's super exciting. I'm going to ask you a couple of um, sort of Christian-centric questions, uh, starting with what are the two best pieces of advice uh, you've received so far in your career, in your life, and who did they come from? Okay, the, the, you know, the best advice that I've received is from some of the social media comments telling me to slow down because there's so much in here and my patients would complain of this at times. And I would just be like, I, I, I see 45 patients a day. Um, and I had a great team around me too, but I'd go in, they'd be like, Oh, my back's going to be like, do this, 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 call me, come back, boom, boom, out the room. Like, wait a minute. And then I'd say, wait a minute, I don't think they got that. Then I'd have to go back because I get things that quickly. My brain, because of my dad, it's just like, you know, 100 miles a minute, like get it, got it, I'm clear. If I'm not clear, I'll circle back for some refinement. So I learned that, you know, the good advice is everyone's brain doesn't work that way. And I knew that because my dad would always say, say it, you know, say it so my black grandma can understand it. So <laughs> to slow down and to, you know, really, you know, dig in and build the foundation and explain. And that's what storytelling is all about. And the second, you know, significant piece, you know, and then these are supplemental things of all the things my dad just instilled and were found, you know, foundational um, for me um, was from Tash Mosley, um, um, Hollywood manager, Tash, real good guy. He managed my dad um, for my dad's film work. A lot of people didn't realize my dad did a, he still did a significant amount of film and television work um, in the film you'll hear Rob Schneider say, oh, well, I didn't know when I brought Dick Gregory to do The Hot Chick, uh, and my dad later told him, hey, I'm really happy I did that film because as a result of it, I got health insurance. And my wife, Lillian, she fell down and broke her arm, and the health insurance covered all of it. Um, that's not fully accurate. What is accurate and profoundly important is health insurance for older Americans, especially a cancer survivor, is just, you know, insanely expensive and cost productive for anybody, um, especially for someone who didn't believe, wasn't like a, you know, a medical oriented person. Um, naturally, anyone over the age of 65 has Medicare, um, which they've earned that. That's Medicare. Even if you have insurance, if you're retired, your Medicare becomes your primary. Um, by my dad doing that film, which was that he didn't know this at the time. He just did it because him and Rob were friends. Yeah. Um, and his lines were so easy. For Dick Gregory, it was, I don't do lines. You have to allow me to, you know, impromptu. Uh, otherwise, um, I, I, I to improvise. Otherwise, I won't do it. Um, he didn't study lines. His brain moved too similar to mine, moved too fast for lines. But he was able to get whatever the minimum credit is to do to get your screen, your SAG, your Screen Actors Guild insurance reactivated, um, that it activated. And the SAG still, which would have been supplemental to Medicare, was just such an incredible insurance plan that things that normally there would have been significant things that Medicare didn't cover or coinsurances um, or just certain facilities that just wouldn't take you, 
um, was such a huge umbrella policy that my dad, he didn't know it, just heard my mom and said, oh, everything's covered. So he said, oh, really? I'm going to report that back to Rob. And the beauty of Rob, when he heard that, so here's Rob Schneider, you know, this outspoken, you know, white filmmaker, slapstick comedy, you know, right. silly films. Um, you know, Rob was almost a little embarrassed to ask my dad to do Hot Chick. I think he was shocked when my dad said yes. And so here Rob said, oh, you know what? I'm going to come in because we haven't finished the movie yet. In, a, in the next calendar year had started, I'm going to film another segment with Dick that we're not even going to use, pay him whatever that minimum is for SAG, because I told him how happy we, the family was, I was, um, that my dad had this much larger now insurance policy, umbrella policy. And just the beauty of Rob, he brought him in, filmed something that he knew he wasn't going to use just to, again, qualify so he didn't get one year of that umbrella policy, but two. And right. so... Tash Mosley, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, was my dad's manager, and there was so here's some fun film facts. So, um, in uh, and I'm gonna need your help with some of this, but in the in Black Panther, the role of the elder that was played by uh, um, uh, I know the brother well, um, oh boy, uh, New York brother, um, been in films forever. Um, Forrest Whitaker. That role was supposed to be played by Dick Gregory. It was offered oh. to Dick Gregory first. And so Dick Gregory would have been in Black Panther, uh, and then it would have been Super Black Panther. Um, Dick Gregory <laughs> would have been in Black Panther, um, uh, Boardwalk Empire, Mark Wahlberg series. Um, they had wrote uh, wrote him in to be a regular on it. It was just it was just too line heavy. Um, it was too scripted for my dad. You know, he's an unscripted cat. Um, the um, um, Helen Mirren and, uh, and, and Donald Sutherland, the last film my dad did do, um, Leisure Seeker. Uh, mm. Oh, boy. I mean, they were all old friends. I mean, when, when my dad, so if you haven't seen the clip of my dad in Leisure Seeker, um, and no script, they just wanted him, they, it was explained to him, it was an Italian film um, production, and they just said, we, we want Dick in a wheelchair just to cuss two old white people out. He said, sign me up. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> So that could happen in an airport anywhere in America any day. Just follow him. That will happen. And yeah. so it's a, it's a great part where, you know, he's, you know, he's he's in the hospital in this senior city with Alzheimer's. And the woman comes in because Helen Mirren is saying that Dick was her first boyfriend when she moved to the country um, and moved to America. And Donald Sutherland is hell bent. He has a shotgun under his jacket, hell bent to meet her first boyfriend and is just shot beyond belief when he realizes it's a black guy. Um, and the black guy answers his shot beyond belief by letting him have it. And it's just a short little cameo, but, oh, they cut up on the set for probably five days before they could even get to shoot. And just, you know, speaking of their anti-Vietnam platform, all of the sacra, like a lot of people don't realize you know, there were a lot of good white folks that were part of the civil rights movement. And, you know, they didn't all go all in like Dick Gregory did. But, you know, there was the, the civil rights, went to human rights, women's rights, um, all of these campaigns that came after. And, you know, blood, sweat and tears is where we find DNA. And by that measure, Dick Gregory's DNA is on all of these movements that are rooted in fairness justice and equality dick gregory played a role and was there in some meaningful way um andre frequently says you know dick gregory's like the black smart forest gump and it's like yeah he was there i mean he was there boots on the ground in your face finger waving you know with 
with style, charisma, and, you know, pizzazz. Well, I always wondered if, if they took, you know, the whole scene where Forrest Gump runs across the country. I always wonder if they took inspiration of that scene from Dick because Dick did that <laughs> it, first. It's, it's, it's befitting. I mean, as you know, my dad ran from Los Angeles to New York City um, running 50 miles a day. He had an AM marathon with rest midday, PM marathon. You hear folks complain for weeks, if not months on end, after running one marathon. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, for 40-plus days, um, just two marathons a day. I mean, his feet were like dog meat. He He had, I mean, Dick, teeth were bad, feet were bad, joints were bad, you know, multiple hernias from just all the jobs he had working, you know, on the flood line when he lied about his age, working during the, um, um, uh, during the world war at munition plants and lifting heavy munitions and again, lying about his age. Um, all of this is in his, his autobiography. The, um, he was, you know, a lot of, a lot of sacrifice. People saw the polished beautiful suit, you know, um, you know, MLK cap, but they didn't really, there was a time, you know, pre 9-11 when, you know, the airport experience was a little different. Um, yeah. My dad had like you know, four hernia belts that he had to like buckle into, almost like a child that needs braces to walk just yeah. to hold all his hernias in from the damage he had to his ab- abdominal wall as a child. Um, you know, and I would be like, man, they all look like bear traps. I mean, he's just snapping it. So to watch him go through security and have to take all of that off and only put it all back on. No, it's like watching RoboCop. I mean, yeah. this is the 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 folks that knew Dick Gregory well knew the beating that his body took and not just the one he took from Bill Connor, but the beating that his body took. And most of that beating was, you know, at his own doing. I mean, it was like he hazed himself as much as he hazed other folks. He certainly hazed Andre Gaines to earn the right to make this film. Andre can expound on that at length. Yeah, I I love it. And so Dick's obviously a mentor. You've become a mentor for this young film community that's watching this, uh, what is the best way to find a mentor if you had to pin it down? Um, let me say this, and I want to answer that, because I mentioned Tash mostly, but I didn't mention what Tash advised me. Oh, yes. Tash, and, I, and that was my mistake. Tash was another one that said, slow down, understand your equity, understand what you bring to the table, And don't, you know, a lot of times we think of equity just among financial, but sweat equity is huge. Understand what you bring to the table and make sure you're being compensated and appreciated for that. Because now that, you know, I'm attached to this project as an executive producer, um, I'm attached to the scripted as a producer. Um, There's 10 other film projects I'm involved with right now that don't have anything to do with Dick Gregory's orbit other than being rooted in love and lovable. There's a momentum film project that I'm involved with that's about a present day SEAL Team 6 team that gets caught in a time warp and winds up back in Memphis in 1968, three days before King's assassination. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant. Everyone we shared the Bible with um, just called immediately, how can we be part of it? Um, My dad and I, our media company, Dick Gregory Media, um, which has now evolved to Tower Hill Entertainment, it was always rooted in fairness and equality in telling stories about us with love. And what I would say to any young 
or old person getting into film. And, you know, nowadays with a with smartphones, you know, we're all producers. We're all mm-hmm. gathering content and all that content's worth something. And so like the the, the young sister who um, tragically but gratefully um, um, videotaped the entire nine plus minutes of George Floyd. Um, yeah, she's a she's a film producer. I mean, she's a that content on her phone is her intellectual property. When we die, most people in their wills, and I learned this from my dad, his will definitively carved out tangible physical property. If there was some holes in his will for intellectual property. And, you know, I, I was an advisor for Miss Cicely Tyson. I talked to Cicely's daughter, who's the executive of her estate regularly. Um, the same attorney drafted um, Miss Tyson's will that drafted my dad's will. And these folks, they liked attorneys they were friends with. And so they weren't folks that specialized in intellectual property. So I would tell everybody now, understand that every keystroke you put into your phone is your intellectual property. Every little short text, every little short story, 100 years from now could be the basis for a mini series, the basis for a film. You never know how far reaching something you do or say or type or take a picture of or a video of do today will be tomorrow. So arm yourself with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best example of that is Bradley Cooper. Um, um, Ellen DeGeneres was one of these shows that she was the host for, one of the big award shows. Um, she was sponsored by one of the phone manufacturers. And so she had the phone. It was like, let's take a selfie. So it was like a who's who of A-list <laughs> yeah. celebrities. Right. Her arm wasn't long enough to capture it. So Bradley Cooper, at her request, took her phone and snapped the picture. He owns the picture. It's his intellectual property. Regardless that it's on her phone, he's the artist that adjusted it, got the lighting, got the angle right. right. What's on your phone is your property. And as we move into this virtual realm of the blockchain, and two of my companies are, are, are crypto collectible, not in cryptocurrency space, because I don't trust people. Um, but <laughs> I am in the crypto collectible space. I do think that cryptocurrency will be, um, but you know, a lot of you know, Hill Harper and a lot of other folks that are deep in that space, you know, you know, hey, you're not, it's not that I'm not embracing of it. It's just same reason I'm not, you know, I don't invest on Wall Street. Anything that can be manipulated um, and crypto collectibles, like the whole NFT things that most people don't even understand are definitively being man- manipulated right now. And so yeah. it'll go through, a, and again, folks are going to hate me for this. It'll go through a Ponzi scheme-like cycle, but then like that pendulum swinging, it will level. The blockchain is a much better platform than the World Wide Web for things to be housed and located and insulated to protect our intellectual property. And now one of the companies I'm working with is looking to attach, you know, uh, a, 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 a non-fungible token to physical property. So almost like a deed to a home. Hey, that's your phone. Those are your pictures on your phone. They'll each be deeded with their own non-fungible token. But I don't want to go. I want to get back to what we're. Well, no, I agree with that. And and we t- we've talked about NFT a lot because I think there. So we have a scene in one of our films 
uh, that's an NFT that got made into an NFT. And just to test it out, and you're right, the whole NFT market is being propped up right now by about 11, 10 or 11 very deep pocketed people. They have a vested interest in it right. doing well. So, which right. is the sole example of a Ponzi scheme yes. or a pyramid. We're pumping it up. But I don't say that to be negative. It's, I mean, it's, it's going to work out, but they, will have, they have to pump it up in the in the short term. So I think you're dead on about that. We have an interview coming up with a IP intellectual property lawyer named Kevin Christopher that uh, I'm excited. It's going to come out. It's going to talk exactly about what you're saying. Like, this is all your intellectual property. Profoundly important. And, Profoundly. and people lose that property because they don't know their rights. Mm-hmm. And they don't they they put everything else in their will but they don't have a control measure. And too much of it, we give it these social media platforms, the release we sign to put our content on it, we're giving it away. And so I'm not saying, you know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You got to put it on there to get the content out because we don't have our own platforms. Donald Trump showed how difficult it is to build your own platform. Mr. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go build my own platform. Profoundly difficult. So we need to use the infrastructure that's in place. But we also moving forward need to find a way for us to be able to monetize, you know, what's ours. I mean, brick and mortar property is you know, is not more important than virtual, than intellectual property. I have another gentleman I want to introduce you to that I'm certain he'd be very eager to come on your program. Jeff Price. Mm -hmm. Jeff runs a company called Word Collections, and it's solely the focus is going and getting the copyright violations specifically as it speaks to comedy and spoken word. So if you do, my dad did 12 studio albums. Um, Sometimes the you know, the album, the, the copyright might be in the studio's name, um, might be um, in the um, whoever, you know, uh, did the, 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 the cover art on the album would be, you know, copyrighted and protected. But the spoken word, the intellectual words are always owned by who is saying them. So mm-hmm. the, the, the live performance aspect. So there's three copyrights on spoken word and comedy. And most of these comedians just simply all of these digital platforms, YouTube, um, 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 XM satellite radio that are playing all of this content they're, they're They have accounts where they're putting these Black and white comedian and spoken words, money aside, because they know someday they're going to come asking and say, oh, yeah, we knew we had to pay you. You just never asked. And so that's going to be no penalty for it. So in, in a lot of the things that shifted, hip hop's the largest music genre in the world. And there's just a lot of deceptive practices that have been set for producers and black producers in the hip hop genre are really not getting money that's out there, airmark for them. And some of the thing is when you have a ton of money, you say, I don't care what I have. If it's mine, it's mine. Why should I let this corporation have it? And Jeff Price, this is his third company in dealing with his first was going after the radio stations. Then it was going after the the labels. And now it's going after spoken word and comedians. And so, you know, you have to write it's everywhere. So you can't check. You need algorithms to scrub and find and say, hey, by the way, you know, you know, sound exchange and all that. By the way, you owe me money for what came out of my mind. And so with the blockchain now, what what 5G allows technology to do 
And I know at first it was a lot of boogeyman, boogeyman. But when the microwave first came out, you right. know, we didn't have any of that in our home. But I'd go to my, you know, neighbors and friends and family and the grandmas would say, OK, everyone get out of the room. I'm getting ready to turn on the microwave. You know, <laughs> So everyone had to clear out of the room. And, you know, and now, you know, mom or dad today, they got their forehead against it as they're texting, um, as they're heating up their suit. So um, the 5G, really the boogeyman aspect of it. The truth of it, when it's fully there, because it's not there, it's not optimized yet, will allow virtual reality and reality to sync up. And huh, now you're talking the Matrix. Now you're talking, you know, young kids on a skateboard talking to someone next to them that's not there, like, but they're there to them real time. So virtual reality and reality syncing up. And you think analog folks are having a hard time now. I mean, my dad struggled with his smartphone. 10 times a day, he called me from his landline asking how to turn it back on or how to turn <laughs> it off. How do I call your mother again? So uh, some of these folks are really going to struggle once that quantum leap in technology and we're you know year two year out from that and so you must understand it and you, you don't have to know how to write code i would encourage young folks to but if you're you know my age or older you don't understand what it is but because soon you won't be able to go anywhere they all you know cabs are gone pay phones are gone my dad struggled with that like you know well can someone get me an uber can someone get me a lift he didn't know how to do it on his own so you, it will help, it will behoove older analog folks to understand this because life will be much more enjoyable. Hearing's already going bad, vision's going bad. Well, if you don't know how to simply order food or order yourself a car, life's gonna be pretty tough, but there's some significant changes and I'm super happy to hear you're bringing that type of information on this platform. Yeah, absolutely. But to take it back, you, you had to mentor your dad on how to use a phone. What about just finding mentors in general? Just to take us back to that, do you have any any thoughts about if you had to pin it down? You know, how so, do you find a mentor? I do. As you know, as a Gregory, we pretty much have an opinion on everything. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> I would say this. Um, you know, my dad had ten children, but really, I was the only one that wound up doing that for him. So, having more kids doesn't insulate you to the fact that oh, great. I got all these folks who are going to do X, Y, Z. Um, you know, there's folks that have many kids and the kids don't do anything but put them into a home. So find folks who there's love and respect there, mutual love and respect. That's important. But also to realize you don't need to get all of your information from one source. Back in the day, you kind of did because you didn't have these platforms. So find, you know, five, 10 or so podcasts that you Look at regularly where you go. Like I just mentioned, you know, the, the the information you provide on here, Chris, is profound. There's people that I hear people, especially certain entertainers right now, talking about NFTs. I know if I put a mic in front and said, drill down on what an NFT is. These are just things to them. The concept behind it, you know, it's complicated and it really takes an ability to have a digital mind from 30,000 feet up to see what that is. And as I explain to folks all the time, we had baseball cards when I was a kid that were assigned value. And NFT is like a virtual version of that. And so right. it's in in they say, oh, so really, yeah, real money, like real value, real money. 
Money in the future will not be this tangible, dirty paper transaction that we're doing now. Um, some of the things we look back on and say, wow, that was really, you know, the dark ages of time. People using physical currency, you know, right now during COVID, we're like, don't even shake hands, you know, watch it. <laughs> but yet we're like counting filthy money as we exchange it to each other. Right. So um, it will change. Um, embrace technology. I'm a, um, a, I'm, I was an early um, 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 early adopter to electric vehicles. I've been a, a, a Tesla man almost from day one. Likewise. Um, uh, and so, and the people say, oh, you just like certain brands. No, no, no. The moment someone does it better, I'll jump ship. I'm not vested with any of these companies. Um, I'll jump ship. I go to who does it right. Um, you know, people say, oh, you talk about Apple so much. Well, because it makes my life easier. You know, when when I'm exchanging using blue bubbles and can send you a PDF and then, then I get someone that's got a green bubble and the PDF keeps bouncing back and I say, hey, I'm going to have to email it to you. You're slowing my pace down because the technology is not on the same scale and it's not level. Exactly. Um, I went back and forth to the Tribeca Film Festival from DC to New York, only required one stop. You know, um, um, uh, Currently I have a Model 3, but uh, I ordered the Cybertruck. I'm a big guy, I'm a lifelong pickup truck guy. Yep, so yep. And I got the, the 3 is just a placeholder to the Cybertruck comes out. And so good, we have, we have that in common, we can tailgate together. Yeah, I, so I bought a Model S in 2014, 2014 or 2015. And at the time, I, I want to say I was the first five people in my city. Doesn't and, surprise and I'm, me. I'm in Brentwood, Tennessee, um, to have it. And I remember executives and C-suite people telling me how foolish I was, and oh, you you, you got caught up in the in the cult I, of personality of Elon. I said, no, no, no. I've been following Elon since PayPal. I've I bought I bought my Model S in cash. Okay. I said okay. I don't have any debt on do. it. I was following him for years. I'd saved up money to buy it. <laughs> like it wasn't, I didn't get emotional. You're, you have it exactly opposite. Yeah. I, I, and, and I'm like you, once you see that it works and you have that epiphany, you're like, oh, this is, no, this is going to be huge. So not only did I buy the car, I just put a bunch of money into the stock. And okay, it was smart, like, smart. Um, I, it's just, and I'd seen this man execute. Um, uh, uh, several times, I was like, "Oh, this is this is this is seems risky on the outside, but once you do the research and you're dug in, it's it's not as risky." Look, uh, electric vehicles. You put three hundred. You can put um 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 three hundred thousand miles on them. Most yeah. people don't realize they my don't Model re X that I have now. It's a million mile drivetrain. Yeah. Well, this is what. So this is. It's almost what I explain to people. Um, and this isn't just Tesla. You know, it's a, there's other incredible vehicles that are coming. Tesla just has the best infrastructure. Yes. And I'm a condo guy. So I, I need to I need to charge while I'm on the move. Um, I don't charge overnight. And the the what people don't realize is it's like when people first start, when I first, I was like, what the hell is a smartphone? What makes it smart? You know, and now we can't <laughs> live without it. So, you know, I was one of those cats with my Nextel flip, like I don't need no smartphone and, you know, still happy that I could flip my phone clothes at the end of a call. And, you know, I had people in my orbit that for the longest time, you know, what was the, what was the, with the keyboard that everyone used to. Uh, it's like the um, T-Mobile um, or the, the Blackberry. There's Blackberry. The uh, Blackberry, 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 Palm, Bla yeah. Black, Blackberry folks 
Don't be the BlackBerry folks of automobiles and thinking that there's going to be another <laughs> comeback for tangible keyboards and all of this. Like the the technology is a quantum leap in um, again, I went to New York and back multiple times, but, you know, I charge one time for 20 minutes. People think it's a 20 minutes. That's enough time for me and the missus go to the bathroom, stretch our legs, grab something out of the cooler because we like to be health eaters. We bring our food when we go places, then get back in the car and zip right up. Most hotels will charge it for you for free overnight. So yep, you just don't realize the savings and two big things, the big gas pinch that was recently here and everyone couldn't get gas. I was sleeping soundly at night. Like, yeah, I can't, can't relate to that. And the amount of folks down in Houston, when they had that freak winter storm that were sleeping in their Teslas and running their laptops and phones and recharging <laughs> them because they could drive an hour away to recharge and come back. It just, once people make the leap, they'll see. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but we gave away a lot of you know, now would be a good time to show it. So we got a lot of, a oh, those ton are cool. of merch. And I'm going to send, I, um, um, Nick's dad picked up a lot of this, but I'll make sure you get some. Awesome. Um, and for uh, those in the audience just listening to this, he uh, Christian just showed me a, a tote bag, beautiful tote bag with the key art on it. It's 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 we have I mean we have bags, we have cookies, we were we we really just wanted to show our gratitude to all the folks involved. But we put my dad's new Caribbean um, Caribbean shake. We put cans of that in there, the new energy drink that is uh, wellnessandnature.com. Um, all of my dad's nutritional products are still available. But I say all that to say the bags were about 15 pounds. We had 90 of them. Um, so in two cars, one coming from Chicago. The and then me, me. I mean, my car was loaded to the hilt and it drove the exact. I mean, I've had pickup trucks with less weight that didn't handle the load that well. So most people just don't understand the benefit and then the life. I'm, I'm a lover of life. I always, I won't buy a home if it doesn't have a sprinkler system, like if it doesn't have, you know, solid evacuation plans. I'm always only on certain floors so I can make rapid, you know, ingress, egress. The real driver for me was safety. I mean, for 25 years, I operated as a chiropractor. I saw the ugly downside of automobile injuries. 40,000 yeah. Americans a year die from automobile injuries. At least 20 times, I'm certain the technology of these cars saved my life. You know, we all get distracted. We all got beeps and bells going on just a mm -hmm. hand's length away. At least 20, 20, 25, 30 times easily that alert that break for you, that swerve for you has saved my life. That alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah, I, I call it Tesla effect when people actually get in the car or when they notice the car and, and see that it's behaving differently. And there's a couple of little hacks like that. Uh, that uh, One is I figured out how to reduce road rage. Just turn on autopilot in five o'clock traffic on the interstate. So what actually makes you mad is that you have to be constantly attentive to the car in front of you and behind you and beside you. Absolutely. Once the car can do it, you're just riding along. You uh, reclaim so much quality of life. Yes. It took us 45 minutes to get through the Lincoln Tunnel. Mm -hmm. I, I set the auto, I, you know, higher speeds, as you know, it alerts you to touch the wheel more often. But right. when you're crawling along, I think once in the Lincoln Tunnel, it was like, 
hey, grab the wheel. So, you know, I was able to engage with my wife. We were able to draw out the strategy. Who we need to get on the gift bag list. I got so much work done. (laughs) You are literally reclaiming your quality of life. And so it's truly superior. Tesla, you know, Elon, you know, if you're listening, go ahead and, you know, um, buy some ads on the program, you know, show that love back. But really for me, it honestly, like people say, why'd you get your dad that type of phone or that type of car? It really is about, you know, understanding what's next. And so that's the beauty of what we're doing here, um, Chris. I mean, we're the long after we're gone, these projects that we're doing, people still watch Gone with the Wind. People yes. are still watching Roots. People are still long after we're gone. And now since it's digital, they get chopped up, repackaged, refund. So it just is a, this is a, just this, you know, us chopping it up here can be divided up into a billion different sound bites and serve different purposes to different folks. And it's really just a blessing. It is. It is. It's a type of immortality. Uh, you, you you mentioned being involved in 10 projects outside of the one and only Dick Gregory or anything Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory related, excuse me. Uh, what would be maybe some of the biggest creative and business mistakes you're seeing newcomers making so far? Because you're around um, so many projects and young folks doing this. Great question. And my answer to that would be thinking they need you know, old folks and old money. You know, there's a lot of gatekeepers in Hollywood that don't want to see you shine. It's like when I became a chiropractor in Washington, in in Washington, D.C., the chiropractic board had a lot of haters on it. They liked the limited number of chiropractors that were in D.C., and they were hell-bent to keep it that way. So it had nothing to do with your intellect. I had to wait a year before they even offered the opportunity to take the, 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 the board exam. And so this is something that most states offer it four or five, six times a year. So I had to wait a year just to even take it. And then when you did take it, it was laughable just how poorly structured was. And you could see the intent and purpose was for you not to, not to, we want to make sure good chiropractors, <laughs> we want to make sure no chiropractors get through. And since I think the folks most likely who were involved with it are probably no longer alive now, so I don't feel bad about outing them. <laughs> um, it was all white folks. They were yeah. like, they pulled me aside. This test that I had been studying my ass off for, like, like to the point, six months, not going to movies, not going out to eat, not knowing my family, like that level of studying that, you know, most folks, unless they have a post-grad training, you really don't understand like board, board and bar exams, the level of focus. And so my whole life had stopped. I mean, I wasn't going to the gym. I get out on an occasional jog. And when I got in there, the woman pulled me aside and said, you know, I really love your father. Don't worry. You don't have to take this test. I was pissed. I was like, well, most of you know, if I was the wrong type of cat, I would have been like, oh, what a blessing. I was like, are you are you kidding? And meanwhile, yeah. the other 10 people taking it were friends of mine. So how was I supposed to go back and tell them, hey, sorry, y'all didn't make it through. Did you find the test hard? I don't know. She told me I didn't have to take it. Like, you know, like I got friends too. What am I supposed to tell people? It immediately made me feel stupid and entitled and gifted. And I just said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, 
not a chance. I was like, uh, <laughs> I, these people here are my friends. We've been studying together for this. And I just insisted on taking the test. And I know my score was dramatically higher than theirs. And we were all pretty much equally competent. So I think that was skewed. So don't let gatekeepers. Um, I mentioned Green Book a moment ago. Yes. Um, in the Farley brothers and the, the, uh, uh, which of the Farleys, but one of them was here in D.C. We were all there were going to there was going to be a screening of Green Book at the Oprah Winfrey Theater inside of the African-American History Museum. And prior to it, we all kind of marched as a group from the MLK Memorial um, and we got back to the screening and the Farley brother was speaking and he was like, you know, it's not always about, you know, who makes the film when we wanted to make Green Book. No one else was out here trying to make the film. And I kind of called BS on that. I said, because you can get films greenlit doesn't mean you're the only one who wanted to do it. There's plenty of black filmmakers out here that want to get their products out. They can't get financing because the same gatekeepers that financed your film um, won't finance ours. And so um, I thought Green Book was an incredible movie, but it also was incredibly irresponsible because the takeaway here you have this, you know, this intellectual, this acclaimed virtual who just, you know, has exceeded all of the expectations of life. And then you got this caveman of a white cat that, you know, you know, barely speaks English, bar knuckle brawler. And you walk out of there with him, the hero. You know, you walk out of there feeling like, wow, he was amazing. Thanks for sticking up for us. You know, shame on your community for holding us down. Because one of you <laughs> I, so I was so conflicted because I can watch something just as a film and say, okay, wow, that was great. That was beautiful element, smart how you time, you know, it's a, it's a road trip film. It was so well done. It was so well executed, it was. It was. but also I can look at it and say, had we done it, it would have been different. And I also think, you know, we all need to, we all need to be thick skinned, you know, you know, art is subjective. What one person loves doesn't mean everyone needs to love it. So for me to, you know, to critique, a film, we're all entitled to that. You know, it's a, uh, you think it's hot in here. I think it's cold. These are opinions, not facts. So, um, so I feel, you know, and I expressed my opinion because that's what I do. <laughs> and it ruffled some feathers, um, you know, even with some friends, because it was clear that there was, you know, a relationship with the Farleys and there was talk of some new projects and they felt like, you know, here come these Gregories, um, you know, speak in their mind. And so, and I said it with love, you know, I, I definitely said it with love in, in, in the other more recent example of that, you know, just because there's black folks, Oh, well, we got black folks on the board. Oh, we got, that doesn't mean, you know, there's the amount of love or understanding you need multiple. So if I miss something, just like my dad always had missed that Jack Parr didn't allow black folks to come and sit on the couch. He got caught up in the glamor and missed that. And when yeah. it was pointed out to him, he was horrified. And that's the reason he said, no, we need to work as teams to make sure that we're seeing the, you know, the totality of the spectrum and not just caught up in the moment. Like I said, I did both with Green Book, caught up in the hype and the glamour. Great. Then sat back and said, this is what troubles me. And so, and this is what I would do different. And so, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or if you're not making films, say, this is what I'd like to see different. And so 
you know, almost within 30 days of each other, you had both of the kings. You had Charles King and you had Regina King. Mm -hmm. um, Regina King, one night in Miami, you know, I knew most of the subjects in there personally. Um, and uh, naturally didn't know Malcolm. Malcolm was killed before I was born. But uh, Sister Betty Shabazz was like, very close to me. Uh, we flew to Africa multiple times together. She was a patient of mine. Um, uh, I read a book um, that, uh, and you know, I went through a super militant. Before I became a gangster rapper, I was super militant <laughs> at Morgan State University and read a book that had some colorful things to say about the death of her husband. I mentioned it to my dad. He said, hold on, click back on the line, and here's Sister Betty Shabazz on, tell Betty what you just told me. I was horrified because it was real, <laughs> you know, uh, wild stuff. And so she giggled and she laughed with love and she explained to me, oh, we've heard that before. We've looked into it. I'm glad people are still discussing. It was just, and ever since then, we just became an incredibly close. So, you know, Betty Shabazz, Coretta Scott King, Dr. Dorothy Height, um, 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 Merle Evers, uh, uh, Rosa Parks, all these people, most of them were patients of mine, but definitely they were all like moms to me. And, you know, I considered myself the chiropractor to the movement. I kept the movement upright. And yeah. the stories you hear from people when they're laying on your hot, you know, aqua therapy bed, intersegmental traction table, it almost is like a trip to the therapist. They start opening up. And in those times in opening up, although I may not have known some of their husbands, who, you know, were, you know, martyrs in a sense, gunned down by a white, vicious, racist system. I knew personal side of them through them. And it was, it was very special to watch One Night in Miami. It was clear the love that was there. So we know black folks couldn't stay in certain types of hotels back then. They showed that in the movie. Yep. So, you know, a white filmmaker or videographer or cinematographer may have focused on just how ran down the room was, you know, rats and roaches, not Regina King. You didn't even see the room. You just saw these glowing, beautiful human beings and their spirit is what filled that room. We, yeah. Sometimes we don't need to see what we've already saw for our lifetime. And I said to myself, cause I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I just knew it was her directorial debut. Um, the uh, Regina King's agent and the estate's agent over at ICM is the same person, Lori Bartlett. And, you know, I immediately wrote a lengthy letter um, to, to Lori asking her to forward it on to Regina, just, just singing her praise. Like, you know, kudos on your directorial debut. Just what a brilliant depiction of what life was for these four very different, bigger than life. at such a difficult time in Malcolm's life. Um, the love that Malcolm showed talking to his family on the phone. It just reminded me of my dad. I mean, you know, young folks don't know what a pay phone is. You know, Dick Gregory could spend six hours on, you know, hang up for one call, pick up another while I'm sitting in the car with the car idling, waiting for him to finish up because we didn't have any cell phones then. So um, seeing that scene, was just incredibly special to me. And about, I saw um, 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 uh, uh, Judas and the Black Judas Messiah. Judas and the Black Messiah, yeah. I saw that about a month after it came out. And part of my delay was I didn't like the title. I mm -hmm. said, well, why are we highlighting Judas instead of it being, you know, Hoover, the white devil and the Black Messiah? 
Like, yeah. why are we in the title? And so sometimes that's just me myopically getting hung up on stuff. But I was like, why would we put, my dad would always say, we say we're like, you know, oh, black folks, crabs in a barrel, always put, well, don't look at us. Who's putting the heat under the barrel that's making the barrel so uncomfortable? We're just not by nature don't want to see each other get ahead. It's so there's so much discomfort where we're at. That's where the claw in comes from. You put crabs in a barrel with no heat, no discomfort. You're going to see some relaxed crabs in a barrel. You make it <laughs> uncomfortable in that barrel. You're going to, it's like a towering inferno. People are clawing on each other trying to get out. So I didn't like the title because I felt the title, you know, Jagger Hoover, who personally called for the termination, the neutralization of my father. I was like, he gave this guy a pass again. I was like, you know, I know there's professionals that come up with titles, but the white devil, you know, the big, enormous white devil in the black Messiah would have been. And I know that doesn't fit on key art so nicely, but something I trust me, there's enough smart brothers out here that could have insisted that could have come up with a title that spoke to the moment. So you have this petty thief that, you know, wasn't even, you know, down with Fred Hampton. Like, hey, I, this ain't I'm no activist. Oh, I'm in trouble. So you're going to uh, you want me to turn my back on something I don't. Someone would do that any day. I'm not part of this. It's not like they, Judas was on the inside in turn. This is no Judas. This is someone that the white devil manipulated to go in there and do what he did. So I was reluctant to That's see it for that. Yeah. I love Fred Hampton. I Most thought Lakeith was incredible in that. Say it again. I thought Lakeith was incredible. Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, that. just no, I mean, off no the, question off the about charts. it. From, from the moment that movie started, he was the star. I mean, from yep. the moment that movie started, and it did a great job depicting how they manipulated. It. I mean, when you have yeah. all the, you know, black folks are the milk and honey in America. So when you, when you're in control of all of the milk and honey, yeah, when you control black folks and you have all the resources and, you know, to hang all the carrots, it's not hard to start manipulating folks. And so I here you have, you know, Fred Hampton, who like 20, you know, 19 when he started his activism. He's a kid. You know, when mm -hmm. we sent folks, when, when this country sent folks to Vietnam that age, we were like, hey, we're sending kids. Fred Hampton was a kid. And I say that respectfully. You know, he was the not Jesse Jackson. Fred Hampton was the first rainbow coalition. He reached out to poor white folks. He reached out to our Latino brothers and sisters. He brought together and brought. I felt like the movie skipped past that. They touched on it, but I felt like there wasn't a deep enough dive on that. And these are all just, you know, objective opinions. I felt that. That the, got sacrificed for the love story, probably. It got sacrificed for the love story and the pig hating story. I can mm. like, man, these folks really hate pigs. Like there was so much pig, pig. I saw almost as much shooting from black folks as I did from cops. And I said, wait a minute, this is, this was, it was so lopsided back then because the police were so heavy handed. And it, if you just watched that film, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have realized how disproportionate the force was and what was being used against and what was being pushed back. And I felt that Fred Hampton's feeding of his people was so incredible. And I felt like, you know, these things were touched on and these are the things you walk away from a film that really resonate with you. And that's what I do. I, if, you know, the human body, when we have an allergic response to something, we have an immediate response and a delayed response. And that's how I deal with films. How do I feel immediately? 
then what's my delayed after I've had time to sit and think it over in my delayed response and even my immediate was when the white cops at the end raided, it was so blurred out. I said, no, I want to see their face with the same clarity I saw the brother that shot the cop at the end's face with his face and blood splatter on yeah. it and pig this. And I said, we have an opportunity as filmmakers to, because you lose some people just said, wow, they're not looking. We didn't spend it. There wasn't enough time spent on why there was so much hatred towards pigs and what you you assume people knew. And there's a lot of younger people that didn't know about 60s, um, late 60s, um, the movement in Chicago. Again, I said 68 was like a it was like another civil war. Right. And so when I looked and I read and I saw, and I'm not this person. I mean, my dad's had plenty of white collaborators that he's done book projects with, but I saw, okay, white writer. And then I know there was a brother that came in that directed it, that also got a co-writing credit. But I could I tell Charles was, King produced it. Charles King produced it. And I'm a huge fan of Charles. And also, you know, I think as filmmakers, we should be comfortable weighing in because just like my dad missed Jack Parr, you, when you're too close to stuff, many times you can miss stuff. You know, I mean, you know, it wasn't like Charles King was out there, you know, on the set yelling cut. You know, it's a so sometimes you're just so happy yeah. to have something done that you need someone from 30,000 feet up to say, hey, I would still encourage everyone to see it because we can learn from these things and do better. And that's the type of constructive criticism I want on the projects that I'm doing. I want to get better. I want to make, for my lifetime, black folks have felt bad coming out of most films. So it's about slavery. If I got to see another brother getting whipped or another brother getting hung, like I know it existed. We all do. And uh, I'm not burying my head in the sand and in denial about it. I'm saying, I also know in my travels all over the world, some of the happiest people I've seen were the poorest people. I also know the joy, love, and laughter and humanity that's in our community that doesn't get depicted enough. And if it does, it's snippets of it amongst. There's so many, you know, Seinfeld, all these like, you know, what's it about? I'm a huge Larry David fan, huge Larry David fan. Like, that's my type of comedy right there. Like, yeah, that's me too. A, and like, you know, there's black Larry David's like for certain there's black folks who. And so, we're, you know, uh, tired of the athlete part, the, you know, the the violence that that's there. But there's a whole other side of the, you know, African-American experience, blacks across the diaspora that just simply is not being told. And now we have an opportunity to do so and, a, and an obligation, quite honestly, to do so. Yeah. And it it's great to be around people who have been made to feel comfortable enough around you that they can be your friend and they can be honest with you when you have a shortcoming it's a and, and I always go back and give thanks to a guy named Chris Winty, who was an actor in one of the first films we ever did, which was a short film. And they ran out of ours. We as a team ran out of time we, on, in a location. And, and we were realizing that we didn't get the shot we needed on the film. And he just was so graceful and kind to me. He came over to me and said, you know, as an executive producer, one thing you, you know, 
would have been nice would would have been for you to go in and advocate for more time for us and use your unique negotiation ability to go in and get us more time to be aware of it. And I was so close to the project that I missed it. Like you said, you can just miss it. I just missed it. I was like, oh, I I could have done that. I, I should have done that. And the way he said it was even more graceful than I just said it back to you. And so here I am on the phone missing out on an opportunity to be better at my job. And I've always taken that with me to try to pay attention to details and pay pay attention to the creatives in the room that are doing things. Um, Every one of our films have been renamed. You mentioned that. Sometimes I agree with it, but another part of me is like, as an EP, I really should stand up and say, if you want the name of this film to be this, you need to stick by it. Because Mm -hmm. if it's a streaming deal or a services deal, and you didn't sell to a big streamer, then you're not going to get fair market value for your plays anyway. So the rationale for changing your movie uh, to to a movie title that starts with an A uh, is dead on arrival anyway. anyway. It didn't anyway. make a difference. So um, stick by your artistic chops. So this that was that was a, a wonderful answer. Um, and that's important. You, if people in your corner don't tell you the truth, they're not your friends. They're just along for the ride. You know they're. My, my my circle of friends has got profoundly smaller, like profoundly. <laughs> I got I got lots of folks I like to go and have drinks with, but like my circle of friends, because if I can't lean on you to the same extent you lean on me, you know, you know, um, you know, we're associates. But you know, friendships in, important to me. I mean, friendship is profoundly important to me. My wife Melissa and I have known her since she was you know five and I was six. We grew up, you know, That's she awesome. was my sister Yana's best friend, and the the common denominator in the, the entire span of our relationships friendship i mean we were always friends first so she's my drinking buddy she's my laughing buddy and so when i got something real wild and inappropriate to say she hears it first and so similar to me with my my dad couldn't offend her either you know that you know, she would always say if there was a mic and camera in this car you would be canceled so quickly i said well you know if that's what's meant to be then that's what's meant to be but you know something's got to be said so no, this is um, this is it's it's heartwarming to know there's folks like you and Nick and the work you all are doing, um, Chris. That's just it's going to it's going to change and be far reaching for others. Like the gentleman who said to you, I wish you had a one that wasn't for that moment. That was intended for future. Everything in our life happens for a reason. And those universal breadcrumbs, sometimes they're whole loaves of bread and they just hit us over the head and say, whoa, I was asleep at the switch. It's not like we're lazy asleep at the switch. It's just too many moving parts. And there's the other side of that coin. I wish I had the luxury to be paying that much attention because it's not in my spirit. It wasn't my heart that I missed it. It's the brain, and we're, we're, we're doing too much. And that's why having good friends and a good team of professionals, you got to pay folks. You got to pay folks. You got to have, you know, so many times I'm a one-man band. I'm like, I do my own media. I've never hired someone to do me and my dad's social media. I was like, I'll do it myself. But it comes to a point that during Tribeca, I was so late in posting stuff because I was part of the story. And when you're part of the story, it's difficult. So you have yeah. to really, you have to learn how to, you know, have the right, some people just have 20 people around them, you know, not even doing anything purposeful. That's that one. But a, a mean, lean digital team that really can help maximize these experiences and maximize the work that we're doing is a must. 
Is it true that that Dick actually spent a thousand dollars a month in newspapers and research? Oh, he definitively, did. I got the receipts <laughs> to prove it. Yeah, I, not only it, actually, if you really look at the math on that, it was more than that because most really? of it wound up in the trunk of his car. And you know, whenever he went to the airport, he put all his luggage in the back seat because the trunk was full of newspapers. So people would think there was like a body in there because the weight in the back <laughs> of the car. And it was just all these news. I said, Pop, you're buying all these newspapers. What do you think it's going to like just from being in the trunk through osmosis? It's going to go like read them and get rid. But he had his he said, no, 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 no. If someone ever says something, I can go right back. I know what stack that week's New York time is. So he, in the car, in the house and one of the true joys not for others, but for me, is my dad flying. You know, here's a skinny black man up in first class with a stack this big of newspapers and a highlighter. He could go through newspapers with a surgeon's precision, highlight, cutting, ripping, throwing. They, the, 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 the flight attendants already know. They'd bring him, you know, he was a platinum level fire on every airline. They'd bring him two big trash bags. They already knew Mr. Gregory's going to be gutting these newspapers the whole flight, searching for the cracks in the fiber. But the other thing is, um, you know, uh, when I'm on Amtrak, I always ride in the quiet car um, on the train. And they say, oh, is it because the young folks? Say, no, no, no. Young folks are texting. It's the senior citizens yelling in the phone to their grandbabies on FaceTime that drives me nuts. And so my dad was a was a cell phone violator. I mean, he'd have his earpiece in talking like he was talking to someone in the back of the plane. And for some reason, the story he loved to call to talk about people sitting in the front of the plane, you know, 100 pounds soaking wet, you know, a heavier weight of papers than him in his lap with his earbud on talking to God knows who and just yelling back and forth about 9-11 and the plane crash and doing <laughs> my job. And just to see the people in the plane's face like, whoa, who is this black cat talking about 9-11 and calling bullshit on it and talk about planes going down? You know, a lot of people are anxious flyers. So this was very close to 9-11. Right. And then he would always end with his usual line. Well, I tell you what, now again, we're on the flight. I tell you what, if and when this flight goes down, I know exactly where my black ass is going. I'm going to the black box and holding on to that motherfucker tight. When they find it black, they're going to find something black, all right. And so it was all, they and always they always recover the black box. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And so it was. There's so many colorful, just colorful stories that just stick with you. And one of the joys of being so close, I was there to bear witness to it. And it just is. And one of the wonderful things, as Tash Mosley always says. You know, you produced the end of your dad's life I, and seeing to it that he was still out there, that he was still insulated. Um, I relocated my brother Gregory to New York when I finally said, look, you know, Pop needs to have like, you know, he needs to be in uh, the in, in a care environment where he's surrounded with care. And we knew he wasn't going to go into any assisted living situation. So relocated my brother Greg, moved him into the exact same building my dad lived in but moved into a handicap unit, accessible unit with bars on the wall. Mm -hmm. And so when my dad first, he was happy. I said, dad, Greg's coming here. He's going to start driving for Uber. And my dad knows DC like the back of his hand. I said, do you mind if he drives for you like you used to let me drive for you just so he can learn the city? And that's the only reason we were, and I'm sure in his mind, he was happy because he knew he had become such a terrible driver. So my brother Greg wound up driving him for the, and it, it only wound up being, 
you know, eight months before my dad tried. I didn't had no idea. You know, I thought, you know, I thought we had another five, 10 years and this, this system would be in place. And when he first walked in Gregory's apartment and saw the handicap holding thing, he pulled me aside and said, Hey, 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 doc, your brother must really be fucked up to need an apartment like this. <laughs> <laughs> But meanwhile, it was, you know, my dad would eat cayenne pepper like most people eat candy. Meanwhile, it was cayenne pepper over all the bars from all him using them all. And so it was just cute to be able to the same thing that, you know, parents do to us as kids. Hey, eat your med, eat your vegetables. They pretend like it's an airplane to allow him to have the decency of not being told this is what you need, but providing in literally within one week. That apartment that was built for my dad, he didn't know, he never stepped foot into his apartment again, moved all of his stuff down there and just was like, oh, I'm not, I'm hanging out with my son. So he hung out with his son. Um, He hung out with his son when he was, when my brother Greg was driving, when we were in that, and they were like the the odd couple, they both called complaining about each other. It was, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it was a beaut because it was rooted in love. And, you know, it was, you know, these are the things, these are the decisions in a moment's time that if you're not present, you miss the writing on the wall. And, you know, it's uh, at the time, my brother Greg's relationship with my dad was nowhere near what the closeness that my dad and I shared, but it quickly became that. Like he quickly awesome. became an, and, and it really, I'm certain to this day that Greg's had a better place because of so much closure and so much closeness and being able to provide such a pivotal amount of support, um, you know, regardless of who your parent is, being able to be supportive to them like they were of you, it really is heartwarming. It absolutely is. But no, the, you know, up until the day we lost them, there was entirely too much laughing that was going on. Um, you know, folks were coming in, the medical staff, like, you know, what is going, you know, it's like laughing gas leaking out of one of these <laughs> pipes in here. Folks are in here with this guy in bad shape and he's got them all in stitches. It just was a, the life cycle can be a beautiful thing. Too many times in this country, we turn the birthing process and the dying process into a medical emergency. And sometimes we need to step back, allow things to play out and just surround each other with love, quality of life, is more important than 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 quantity. So um, my dad had this, a beautiful life after he passed. Um, you know, the, my I heard all the conspiracy theories. The person who was happiest about the Dick Gregory dead conspiracy theories was Dick Gregory. He would have been pissed off. <laughs> he would have been pissed off if his folks were if, if they didn't think there was some conspiring. And what I tell folks, it's the true. Let us have a victory. We have one man. And this film so beautifully depicts who lived his life the way he wanted to, was his own moral compass, his own North Star. He didn't have anyone that showed him a blueprint. He left us one. This film depicts that. Um, Let's take the baton where he's handing it to us. Let's take it. Let's grab it firmly and let's do better. Christian, you've been so so giving of your time it this is such it, it's this been a what blessing. it's all about it's been, man been an awesome conversation i only have a few more questions if you're good uh, and i know this is going to be a tough a, a tough question but give it a shot <laughs> what, what would you say is is your dad dick gregory's most significant achievement um is it is it activist achievement is it comic achievement health related achievement, political achievement? 
I get asked that question a lot, and it's not as hard as you might think for me to answer without skipping a beat, his contribution to the health and wellness space, without a doubt about it. Um, when you think of the civil rights movement would have went on with or without Dick Gregory. Entertainment's entertainment, right? So it's not like, oh, because that entertainer didn't come, the world will never be the same. The largest demographic of folks becoming vegetarians and vegans in 2021 are black women. Um, when you look back and trace back in black households and black grandparents, the number one book that really kind of introduced black Americans to healthy living um, was Dick Gregory's Cooking with Mother Nature. So Dick Gregory's Natural Diet for Folks Who Eat Cooking with Mother Nature. Um, after my dad's autobiography, it's the number two selling book of his. And 100 years, 200 years from now, the benefit to black folks and black DNA is going to be so significantly increased and improved, mindful about what you put in your mouth, what you put in your mind, what you, our skin's our largest non-glanular organ, what we rub on our bodies, you know, shaving products, what we brush our teeth with. My dad used to travel with a flat, with a, the box from a tube of Crest toothpaste, and he'd always pick someone in the audience and have them read. Read that part in there about if you swallow more than a pea size of it, and it says contact poison control. I mean, he was always about kind of shock and awe in showing you that there's some, you go out here on the front line protesting all of the valid things you should be protesting, but then you come home and you embrace the things that are killing us. The mm. white, refined white sugar, refined white flour, high fructose corn syrup, all of these things, fried foods, all of these things, you know, meat products. All You don't have to be all in. No one ever said you have to do Dick Gregory's level, but definitively we can do better. Um, so I would say no question about it. Um, and the film really does. For some folks, it's a little off putting how much time the film spends on my dad's contribution to nutrition, but it really, I mean, Dave Chappelle touches on this in the film where he says, hey, you know, um, um, Dick Gregory, you know, that telling folks that, you know, the water drinking man, how important it is to drink water, eight, eight ounce glasses a day, without a doubt, the most important contribution from Dick Gregory is his contribution to the health and wellness space. If you go to wellness in nature, wellness, I N wellness in nature.com. That's my dad's nutrition company. If you click on the history tab, there's just a rich history of a section. When I first went a, a, a rich history of a section of my dad's life that a lot of people missed in the eighties in 88, when I first went to, um, Baltimore to attend Morgan State University. As I, in Plymouth, we didn't see my dad's ads because they were most in big urban areas. Right. The drive from the airport to the school, 10, you know, highway, massive ads of Dick Gregory's Bahamian diet with my dad smiling and a tuxedo toasting up the glass. You know, I was too aged, I was too young to buy alcohol then. So I had my fake ID that was quite good from Boston. And I remember the place that was right next to Morgan that I'd go to, to, to buy liquor. And when the door slammed, the first time I walked in there on the back of the door was a big Dick Gregory poster pointing <laughs> and looking at me. It shook me up enough that I walked out. I said, okay, Pop, I got the message, but he was everywhere. Um, black folks all over the country 
were, you know, making significant, you know, a multiple revenue streams as, you know, selling Dick Gregory's um, Bahamian diet. So his, so the, the, the simple answer for me, the simple answer is his contribution to health and wellness is, which is a contribution to humanity. Yeah, I agree. And I always view him as maybe the first black public figure that was a vegan and, and that, and, and in the community, it's still sort of taboo. You know, I have dinner parties here and, you know, what's that? What's that? What, what, where's the meat at? Where's the, you know, and it's like, try this jackfruit slider. I promise you're going to love it. I mean, it's, and, and here's the thing, you know, back in the seventies being a vegan, you know, you were health nuts anywhere right. you went. There was nothing on the menu for you. Now you go and there's, you know, five-star restaurants that, you know, yep. are vegan restaurants. And so the, and the mistake a lot of folks make, um, you know, processed food is processed food. So I'm not interested in, Hey, you know, come buy these vegan, you know, um, pork chops. We made them <laughs> like, look, you know, if you don't want meat, you don't want meat. You know, I learned to eat for nutrition, the less ingredients, you know, we have rules in our home, you know, certain foods, 12 or less ingredients, certain things, you know, snack foods, six or less ingredients, like, the ingredients can get a little crazy and the crazier it gets, the more stuff. And I don't eat stuff, I want to eat food. And so finding that you're actually, you know, um, consuming food and food by definition has to be nutritious. And so just eating something to eat it is not food. So his contribution to that space is the most profound. Definitely he brought dramatic attention to lifestyle changes. And some of my sickest patients were vegans and vegetarians because they weren't doing it right. So if you're mm. not still getting a healthy, balanced diet, I mean, technically you could get a vegan and be eating French fries all day long. So right. yeah. if you're not getting a and balanced cheese. diet and cheese, if you're not, well, if, so you're, if you're vegetarian, yeah. Over, over mm. soy. I mean, I have some folks in my family um, that, you know, them and their children, all they eat is soy. And I tell them their children, when they sleep over, they're like roosters waking up everyone in the house because all the phlegm and clearing of their throat and sneeze. And I'm like, hey, you know, read the room, folks. Something's wrong here. Listen to your body. Um, I mentioned earlier, there's immediate immune responses and delayed. Don't just listen. Keep a food diary. Write down what you eat. Note what you feel at the time. Note what you feel a couple days later, I mean, a couple hours later, and note how you feel the next day. How food impacts the body is not always immediate. So to pay closer attention um, to what we're putting into our mind, body, and our soul is profoundly important. And Dick Gregory mastered that. He led by example on that one. For sure. And this wouldn't be a Christian Gregory interview if I didn't ask you this question. If you had one month to teach an unhealthy person how to be healthy, what would be the first three things you would teach them? Maybe so, somebody that was pre-diabetic, if you need to be more specific. Um, pre-diabetic, the first thing I would do with someone pre-diabetic is get them on a fast. You know, I mean, there's countless research out here now, and I was dealing with this a lot before I retired from my practice, of just being able to reverse diabetes through completely insulating your blood sugar through fasting. So that's the first thing I would do. But the other thing is, I would, and really it's just one thing, teach people the joys of life. If you understand, if you spend more time 
Watch, and this is this is physiological. Watching waves in the ocean, watching leaves blow, watching tall grass. We've got so removed from that because we're in these buildings with HVAC. And I saw some white cat the other day talking about the benefit of walking barefoot in grass and paying people to come to his <laughs> seminars to calling it grounding. And I said, what the hell? I said, what are you talking? I said, we've gotten that. I'm going to have a seminar tell people the benefit of just, uh, you know, sniff the air, sniff the air. You just sit. It's called we're calling it breathing. Like, you know, get out of here. Like what in the world have yeah, we gotten yeah, yeah. that far removed from being a human that we're paying someone else to show us how to walk in grass? So, Barefoot, the, right. you know, and so I would I would take folks like my dad's book said back to nature. Take them back to nature. Some of these kids have never even seen how a fruit or vegetable grows you know know, our phones aren't high tech the fact you put a ground and a a seed in the earth and it germinates and and, and manifests and and bears fruit like you know mother nature is amazing to sit back and like we used to do as a family to meditate hours in early in the morning watch the sun come up listen to the breeze and and start to understand hey it kind of sounds like and it sounds odd or kooky hey the universe is kind of talking to us you slow down and you listen here's a prime example whenever there's a big tsunami that hits someplace all the animals roll out you know six hours to a day ahead of time but you know us smart mammals and our devices like i don't know where they're going they're stupid (laughs) are they like they're grounded and connected we are not reconnect there's nothing more important to you know to humanity nothing than the environment protecting the environment in the universe so i would take them and get them to drink you know get them to drink water stop drinking all the aids gatorade kool-aid lemonade all these aids and get back to drinking water if you took your dog out on a hike in a hundred degree temperature your dog's not coming back wanting a beer or wanting a lemonade. they want water and so the human body, mammals need water, anything other than that. And so, so sure, do I put some lime in my water if I want electrolytes when it's real hot? Yes, but learn to enjoy, um, you know, the, the taste and freshness of water in, in true water. Most people are drinking water in unsealed plastic containers. And the difference between sealed and unsealed, if it's clear like glass and you can see through it, that means the plastic's sealed on both sides. Still not the best choice, but much better than cloudy plastic. So like milk jug, cloudy plastic, you are basing, you know, that's cancer. You know, you want to, yeah. you know, these jugs are sitting in hot trucks and boiling like tea, all the plastics leaching into them. And then we're wondering why everyone in the house has some new type of cancer um, and tumors growing in the body. We're just not thinking the delivery. Most of the food that's on our plate has flown more miles in its cycle than we do in our lifetime to get to our plate. So buying locally, finding local produce, you know, getting, you know, understanding, you know, um, aquaponics and um, growing your own food. And you can do this in an urban environment. There's some beautiful systems. You know, a lot of the hotels I go to now like to showcase they're growing their own herbs in a self-enclosed environment, no pesticides. No, we are what we eat. That is literal and that's literal and it's um, literally and figuratively that is true. So we need to do better. And so those are some of the things my dad would do to detox folks. But you also have to realize sugar is the cocaine of the food industry. And you do need to, it's what we call the sugar blues. You do need to detox the microbes in your body. 
Candida albicans, a yeast in your body, they love sugar and they secrete things that make the body feel good. So part of us, oh, I feel good eating this sugar is because the microbes in the body are loving it because it's fueling their growth. And when you remove that from your diet, they start to fit, release things in the body that make you not feel so good. In your mind, you think, no, I need that sugar. I feel better. No, no, you have to allow, it's like a drug addict weaning off of anything you have to break that dependency. And then by then, I mean, just because the way we were raised, a, a cold glass, a, just a glass of fresh carrot juice always tasted better than a milkshake. And if it tastes that way to me, it could taste that way to everyone. You just have to retrain your brain. And there's no milkshake in the world that's worth taking years off of my life. And so there's no food. And, and that's what you need to ask yourself. Are these hot dogs and hamburgers so amazing that if I got to chop, you know, 15 years off my life, 20 years off my quality of life, because you look in our community, everyone scooting along. First, it's mm -hmm. the toes, then it's the foot, then it's the leg. If I lost a fingernail, I'm going to be alarmed and make some changes. We got folks in our community losing whole limbs, and there's not alarm bells going off. And so it just diabetes just runs in my No, 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 no. It runs because you eat the same way your parents ate, your parents ate the same way your grandparents ate. You are passing that curse along. We have to be more involved, physical fitness, taking care of our mind and the body and controlling what we put into our body. I think that's a beautiful answer. And for those keeping score at home, first step is fast. Second step, get back to nature. Third step, drink water. And a bonus fourth step, detox, detox. off of sugar. There it is. You captured it nicely. I never said that before, so I need you to send. That's my new list. I need you to send me that. Yeah, absolutely. I will. And Dr. Christian Gregory, this has been an absolute blast. I've learned so much, as I knew I would. Uh, why don't you tell everybody, educate them on where they can find you on social media, on the Internet, where they can see some of your work, where they can buy some of your stuff, and where they can see this great documentary. Excellent. Excellent. And thank you for having me. This has been fun, Chris. We've, we've chopped it up. It's a lot of information. You know, as Gregory's, we love, um, you know, to put information out. The, the worst thing you'd ever want to have happen to you is have someone you know or love lose their life just because you simply didn't know something. So, yes. hey, the fire alarm's going off. Well, if you can't hear it, that really, you know, that's unfortunate. So, you know, the fire alarm's been going off. We're given information. We're given resources. You know, um, um, us. You know, my dad's work is everywhere. As you know, all over YouTube, local bookstores. Of, of his sixteen books, five of them we've republished. We just released his autobiography, "Nigger." It's in Japan. So, Love that. Great uh, book. A, 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 a good friend of mine who works with Sony was explaining to me. You know, white man. Um, translating the title for me. And I said, well, well, you translated that a little too quick, my friend. We, uh, <laughs> so it is, uh, no, it's just, you know, read the books, take the information in. Um, the Real Dick Gregory on Instagram, um, Dr. Christian Gregory on Instagram, the, um, um, I believe it's all the same monikers on, on, on Facebook and on, um, and on Twitter. I'm really most active on Instagram, because I feel like the format and how most people live their life in snippets and bursts of information. Images are so powerful. My dad would always say in the future, we won't communicate in writing or in, in or, or spoken word. 
it'll be images. And you know, that's what, that's what hieroglyphics were. And that's what emojis are. So you can have a teenager anywhere in the world communicate with emojis and they understand what they're saying. So that pendulum's coming back. We're, we're simplifying things. And when humanity as a whole can communicate and there's not as much lost in translation, the, the, the potential for better things to happen, the, the amount of war and fights and destruction that is from misunderstandings there's a we decrease the chance of misunderstanding each other when we're all you know able to communicate freely and properly so i would say you know go out study dick gregory and although the film comes out sunday fourth of july um it streams all day on the fourth of july so it doesn't have to cut into your uh fourth of july celebration no one fought for independence more than dick gregory the color almost looks like fireworks coming off of the key art um you know i'd like for everyone to see the film let's make a commitment right now chris will circle back on the back side and chop it up after the film. Uh, take as many questions as it as it relates to the film, and just as it relates to you know what's next. But you know, by all means, um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll make this commitment here to you, um, Chris. I'll I'll always you know if your platform's always open to me, I'll always come on and discuss what we're doing. You know, big or small, what's new, what's next. There's a lot of exciting things, so I look forward to discussing it. But for right now, just want folks to get out sit in your home, on your devices, and not watch, but experience the one and only Dick Gregory. That is a beautiful way to end this. I will take that invitation up. Uh, I had pages and pages and pages of notes. I knew we'd run out of uh, time we before good. we ran out of topics. And, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a one or done. So, um, yeah. you know, to be continued. To be continued, indeed. Thank you for everything, everything you've meant to me, my family, my business, my business partner, Nick. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see the documentary on Sunday. Take care, man. We'll talk soon. Take care, brother. Peace to you and the family. Thanks, Christian. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.